I'm yours. I have nothing. I did my laundry, so and I ran the dishwasher, so I'm I'm okay. Whatever you'd like to ask. Hey, today we're talking to Nell Yontov. He's only the man behind GI Joe licensing at Marvel in the 1980s. Got a license for Joe. Puzzle soap, lunchbox, gift wrap. Got a license for Joe. License for Joe. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the G.I. Joe Comics Podcast. Today, we will be bringing you an interview with another important person from the history of G.I. Joe. And joining us today, we are privileged to have Nelson Nell Yomtov. Nell is known for his work at Marvel Comics from 1975 through to 1996 as a writer, colorist, editor, and more besides. For G.I. Joe, he colored issues of G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe Special Missions, G.I. Joe Order of Battle, and G.I. Joe versus Transformers. In fact, he colored the whole 80-issue Marvel run of Transformers. Nell played a critical role in the history of G.I. Joe as his role of Director of Product Development in Marvel's licensing division. He was responsible for G.I. Joe's licensing when it launched in 1982, and he was in the room where it happened in some of those critical early meetings between Marvel and Hasbro. But I won't be talking to Nell alone. Joining me in talking to him, it's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hello, viewers, listeners. Let's bring in our guest. Stuff. So without further ado, uh, joining us is Nell Yomtov. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for having me aboard. Hi, Nell. Thanks for joining us. Most of our episodes are Mark and myself talking about issues of G.I. Joe comics, and then mm-hmm. maybe a quarter of them, Mark gets a guest, like you or someone who has drawn issues of G.I. Joe, and uh, the podcast has been running for, what, four or five years, and uh, Mark took over uh, three and a half years ago, four years ago, and I joined three years ago. Nice. So, and so, Tim, you're based up in in Massachusetts. I'm yes. in I'm in Somerville, which borders oh. Boston. Okay. And Mark, you're in Brighton, you said. Right. And where are you based? I'm on Long Island, um, a suburb of of the city of New York, in a town called Baldwin. It's on the south shore of of the island, and uh, it's about a 40, 35, 40 minute train ride into the city. You know where the Marvel office is. Um, you know, or, and uh, I grew up in the city. I grew up in the Bronx, a, a borough of the city, and uh, lived in Manhattan and Queens, and then moved out to Long Island um, a little bit after uh, my my first my my only son was born. So we've been out here for about about thirty four years. What do you read? I read nonfiction, generally World War Two material. I'm a, I'm a I wouldn't say I'm a buff. I'm not that that accomplished that but I'm, I'm extremely interested in the war and the and the american civil war as well i never was big into fiction so it's been it's been non-fiction and primarily military yeah did you go to a library a lot as a kid was yeah a it was a big thing for us back then yeah reading um 
Yeah, my, my mom encouraged reading of anything, including comic books. Mm. It was just get in front of a book and uh, and read. You know, so it was it was a big thing in my house, and you know, and to this day, you know, with um, iPads or with Kindle and all that other stuff, I there's nothing to me like like having a book. Mm. In fact, my wife gave me a a Kindle for my last birthday, and we set it up the first day, and I haven't used it. <laughs> don't tell her that i'm just a real traditionalist when it comes to books it's just that the experience of a book is you know is, is, is main to me and most of my my career has been in publishing most of it has been with books generally for kids kids publishing you know through middle school that kind of thing and that's what i do now i i, I write nonfiction. well i own a bookstore so i think about oh. paper every day <laughs> And um, sometimes when people ask me if I like a comic, uh, sometimes the first thing I'll talk about is the paper or the jacket design or the color. Nice. Because, you know, I'm taking in everything. And, you know, if there's a, like yesterday at the store, someone wanted a recommendation and I was on sort of book 15 of the recommendations because, you know, we could keep talking about yeah, yeah, this forever. Mm. and there's this there's this british publisher and they'd done this hardcover two years ago and there's no dust jacket and it's got red fabric for the spine and the entire book is only printed in black blue and red and uh and my my sort of pitch is that uh you know i've got the one sentence plot it's the writer artists this is a graphic novel first mm. work uh what really grabs me is the color and the art and as writer, this person makes sort of a rookie mistake because it's his first book. So it's a good book. It's not an amazing book, but I still really like it. And I want to read it and, and touch it because of the paper, the printing and the color. Yeah. And we don't sell as many copies when I'm not honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it really is the whole industry. And, and it's, you know, it's changed over the years since I first got into it. But, um, I just find that found it endlessly fascinating with, with just a really remarkable the personalities that I met along the way in publishing were just you know uh, kept me in it you know for you know for so many years interesting people you know uh, well read you know some or many you know well traveled so yeah publishing is very dear to my you know dear to my heart mm. we we usually start with uh, where are you and can you tell us what that cool thing is behind you on the wall that looks like comic art? Oh, it is. Um, the color piece, if you can read it, uh, that says Stark. Wait, I know what that is. Can I guess? Yes. <laughs> That's Mark Chiarello's back cover to the many armors of Iron Man. The front cover. Front cover. Props to you. Yes. Uh, okay. For our listeners, that is an early Marvel collection, uh, and it has... Uh, uh, eight or nine issues of Iron Man, not all in a row, uh, right. featuring first appearances or spotlighting particular uh, armor. There was a new printing of it maybe 12 years ago uh, that had, I think, a Bob Layton cover Oh, with a, with a bunch of Iron Mans flying at you. I was editing Iron Man at the time and, uh, you know, decided to do a, um, a trade paperback collecting the armors issues and uh mark is one of my dearest friends and i know him for many many years and i called him and um 
He said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I, I don't want a traditional, uh, you, know, so, you know, him flying or that kind of thing. Because what, one of the main objectives that we were trying to do at that time, this was probably 91 and 92, somewhere in there. We wanted to try to have a bigger presence in bookstores, Barnes and Noble and, you know, whoever else was around at the time, Borders. Um, so I wanted to go to something a bit more adulty, you know, a bit more dramatic and stuff. So I, I proposed to mark this idea of, of an old um, Russian type propaganda thing, you know, kind of socialist, communist kind of, you know, you know, man at, at work kind of thing. And he took it and ran with it. He, you know, he, he did all the, the, uh, the Art Deco kind of lettering and stuff, but he captured exactly what I had wanted. And ironically, it, images of this appear in the, the, the lead-ins to some of the Marvel superhero movies. I believe the Iron Man movie and maybe some of the others, and maybe the same lead-in to each movie. But yeah, that, that, that was, uh, you know, that was great. That's just, that Mark won't give me the painting or sell it to me. So that's just a really high quality print. And next to it, the black and white piece, which it's real interesting. Yeah, it's that piece there. It, it, you may not be able, you can't see it, but it's Moses on the uh, on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. It was it it was an office gag that that, that art was done by Maurice Severin. It was an office gag that we did in the years that I was in the bullpen. So figure around seventy six or seventy seven. At the time, we were doing a lot of reprints of um, uh, cult classic fiction, uh, you know, with a, whatever you know, you know, all all major you know titles and stuff. And Marie, in the spirit of her being just an office goofball, decided to do this. And she said, well, let's do a book based on the Talmud. So she did, she did that. And, uh, and again, it was never published. It, wasn't meant for, it was just an office thing. And uh, you know, it reads the ultimate classic retold in the mighty Marvel manner. <laughs> and she did the whole thing. She mocked in all the, you know, the Hebrew types lettering and the word Talmud. And, and she mocked it up like a, like a cover that we would send off to the printer to do the, you know, we were doing these, you know, these, um, uh, you know, these retellings of, of, you know, classic literature and she signed it and, you know, gave it to me and stuff. She was, she was a very, very dear friend of mine. I worked physically very close to her. And also, um, we had a you know, close working relationship. Is that a logo right below that? Yeah, that that can I, I can take it off the wall if it helps. Sure. Okay. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, of hand lettering, and this is a piece that appeared as the next issue blurb in one of the Iron Man books I was editing, Armored and Dangerous. Cool. And it was done by Jack Morelli, who's, who's again, between Jack, Mark, and myself, we're kind of like an, an unholy trio. We're very, very, very close. And Jack's <laughs> one of the great letters in, in comics. He's still, and he still does a lot of comic lettering. Uh, and, he's uh, at Archie, yeah, right? He's at, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, yeah. And, um, yeah, whenever, I would always treat as an editor when guys would, you know, do pieces like this, and we just, like, reduce it down and, you know, glue it on, you know, tape, you know paste it onto a, onto the original artboard, but they do it up large and you shoot it down. I, I, I always treated these as pieces of art because I have such respect for, for the craft. And I'd always return it to the, to the letterers, you know, this is yours. It's not, you know, it's not mine. And I did with Jack and, uh, you know, many years passed and we did many, many things together. We traveled together and stuff. And I said, you know what? One of the most beautiful pieces of art that I ever handled was that. And he mailed it to me. And, uh, 
Yeah, it, it's a, it's yeah, it's a, yeah. Oh, he he wrote here title for chapter four of Iron Man number three hundred, signed Jack. So that's that's where it comes from. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I've got other pieces. I say, funny enough, you were talking about sort of like um, like Soviet era propaganda posters, and um, I. I as my sort of thumbnail art for for this very uh, this very episode, a picture of you and the the chaotics, uh, which I've I've uh, I believe was posed to be in that style, and I've I've tweaked the colouring yes. so it's uh, kind of the the red and uh, yellow. So uh, the, the photo is by Michael Sullivan. Did you get that from Larry? That, Larry posted this uh, just last week on his Facebook. Uh, left mm -hmm. to right, Nelson Yomtov. Rick Mason, Jim Albrice, yeah, Albrice, uh, Gary Helgren, and Larry Hammer with MD Bright in front. Do, should we should we linger on this? Can you can you tell us a little bit about the chaotics and and how that all came about? Sure. We started out as the Burning Sensations, and we did that for a couple of years. Interesting. There was a, a slight change in the in the personnel. One of the the, the run of the original founders of the band. Was Bobby London, who you guys may know as a, you know, as a, you know, a cartoonist. Um, his work appeared for many. Oh, he did Dirty Duck. Was his claim to fame? Dirty Duck appeared, I guess, in, in underground comics and also in National Lampoon. The first years of, of National Lampoon being released. Very clever guy and a really good songwriter. We were the Burning Sensations, and we, you know, we did you know gigs and stuff. We had a, a lot of you know fun gigs, and. Um, Bobby left. We had a little switch around of um, of personnel and stuff. Uh, Jim Albris uh, was the only non-comic book guy. His occupation he he hung Venetian blinds. That was his occupation, and still is, from what I understand. Uh, Gary Holgren is a, a well-known painter, cover paintings for commercial magazines. Larry, you guys know, and Mark, you know, really good buddy. He's a bass player. And a, just a, an incredible artist. He's one of my favorite Iron Man artists um, of all time. I'm sorry, I, I did one issue for me when I was editing. I think it was it may have been a fill-in to help me out. Um, but he was, is that during the is that when John Byrne's writing it around 273? I think I think Byrne was. It may have been a stopgap in between Byrne and and um, Kev Hopgood. It might have. That's when. It's, it's when Paul Ryan was the regular artist. That, that's right. Yeah, it may. Have been yeah, I, yeah. I'm I sorry. think Paul Ryan because two seventy five was double sized. Yeah, I think that's what that was. Yeah, and it was only the one that he, he did. I begged him, but he just he said, "Ed, I, <laughs> I, you know, he wasn't the greatest on uh, time." Mark was. You know, some guys really labor over their work, and you're glad when you when you get the babies. But you know, he was a a, a, a deadline issue. And he says, no, I said, I don't want to disappoint you. But he did the one that was gorgeous. I think maybe, um, uh, gosh, I forgot who, who was inking regularly at the time. But it was a beautiful looking book. I forgot who was inking. And the, the so so we played numerous gigs and we lasted a long time. I was the drummer in the band. And I was with the band for about 10 or 11 years. But my real, real passion was playing harmonica. So I, I left the band after that time. I set him up with another drummer. And I formed a blues band that we played must have been for two or three years. And then, you know, I gave that up, but the, the, and that's us at the Marvel Christmas party at the Marvel offices, probably in about 83 or so. Mark wasn't with us at the time. 
Jim in the background is playing bass and Larry is playing guitar. The how, how often did the Chaotix practice? How often did the Chaotix play? We practiced twice a week for, I don't know, for years, whether or not we had a gig coming up. And we played maybe, maybe eight to 10 times a year. So and that's another photo. I, I think I sent that to, to that too is a, a photo of Elliot Brown. This was a big gig for us. This was done at the, um, the Irving Plaza, which was a really nice venue, um, kind of in, in Greenwich Village. And, um, it was a Halloween party for an artist collective. People had come from Europe. I mean, there may be some convention going on at the time, but they asked us to play. Uh, the fellow on the extreme left was our original bass player. His name was Todd. Next to him is Bobby London. And then there's Brick, Gary, Larry, and, and myself. This was our, our big gig. We, we practiced for, for months to do this, and we were going to do two sets. You know, so this was big time for us. You know, it was a, hundreds of people dancing in a, in, a, you know, in a really you know well-known venue. And they cut us off after the first set. We were going back on stage for the second set. And the sound guys started taking down the equipment. I was saying, what? What's going on? They said, well, we've only been booked for X amount of hours and, and time's up, guys. <laughs> that was pretty much in, in line with what the chaotic was about. But, you know, the fact that we, we rehearsed twice a week for years, month after month after month, without playing a real lot, it just kind of, you know, was testimony to the way we, we felt about each other as, as friends. Um, now, where did you practice? We, we rented a studio uh, in what was called the Music Building on 8th Avenue and I think 39th Street, Manhattan. That area of New York was the, was the center of the garment district for many, many years, many years. And um, from what we understand, the, the building was once rooms for uh, heavy industry, shops that, that, that made ladies' garments and things like that, uh, you know, the neckties and, you know, apparel. And uh, the building was sold and was broken up into small units, small rooms, and it was just all music, just all music. And every room had amplifiers and drums and everything. And you would see guys going in and out of the building who I, I knew, you know, were recording, you know, people recording, people I would see, you know, play on stage and stuff, um, you know, some named guys. And, and ladies, and it was just, it was just a, a cheap, you know, way of having regular um, recording space rather than pay, you know, twenty or fifty dollars an hour, in a, you know, in a real fancy studio. You know, we paid collectively maybe two hundred bucks a month, you know, for, um, uh, you know, for that space. And then when I left the band, I the, the guy sublet the, the chaotic sublet to my band um, that, that space. This was more than a hobby because this was also a passion, but this was, you were not trying to get a record deal, right? This was, this was a fun thing you did on the side or yeah. was there some hope? No, solely Tim, you're right. This was something that we just enjoyed doing. We enjoyed being together um, among the wives and the girlfriends. They just thought it was a, you know, a hoot, you know, these guys, and we made good music, you know, when we, Individually, Jim was was musically trained. Jim, who, who you know, Jim Olbers, he was. I forgot where he went, but he went to school and he studied music. He was a serious musician, and he, he plays serious jazz now. And we were lucky to, to get him because he was the guy who was really trained in music. The rest of us, I never took a drum lesson in my life. 
I, I just, you know, I was self-taught and I wasn't, I, I was by no means you know, great, but I was, you know, for the, for the level of you know, skill, I was fine for the band. You know, no one was really outstanding, but we had a lot of fun. We were real energetic. Um, the tunes were, um, the original tunes were uh, sarcastic and snipey and funny, we thought. And, and you know, I, I think, we connected with audiences, and we were we always we did loft parties to raise rent for for, for some guys. Um, you know, it, it was the venues we did which were just unusual kind of things. Um, but we were always you know. But no, we never we we knew who we were. We we had no mis misapprehensions about you know about becoming anything with this. It was just pure, it was pure fun. I, I I loved it. You know, the other band that I started technically was a better band. Technically, but it was it was in no way I didn't I didn't enjoy it anywhere near I, the way I, I enjoyed playing with Larry and the guys. My my last chaotic question: uh, All the songs that you performed were original that the band wrote, or did you do some covers? Covers, I, I'd say it was probably twenty five percent covers. Um, they were all danceable, but some of the covers were were really intended to be party, you know, party kind of thing. So I think we did maybe some Lou Reed in the cars and a Chuck Berry or two, you know, some real identifiable songs. L Larry was, you know, not surprising, wrote a couple of kind of epic, epic songs. I don't know how to describe them. I think one was called Rock and Roll and it was about the, about the band, the, the guys in the band itself and about becoming a rock star and that kind of thing. He wrote a couple of really good songs, and then Brick wrote songs. Everyone wrote songs. I didn't. I'm not a songwriter, but everyone else in the band, even Mark wrote wrote a couple of tunes that we did. Everyone wrote songs, but I, I, I didn't. I just I was too concerned about keeping the beat. <laughs> and uh, Hama, uh, I think Hama started the Chaotix uh, YouTube page and posted three videos of the band performing oh did he that's hama yeah that it was yeah probably... and years years ago oh i wonder if it's around i'll i'll, I'll try to check it out it was I, I don't remember while i was with the band was being videoed we did some recordings but um so it was probably in, in the years that i was you know i was gone um huh. yeah I'll, I'll i'll check it out but i don't we, we had a reunion oh man it must be eight or ten years by now at Larry's apartment in the city, he had a, a huge, I think it was a duplex, I'm not sure, kind of in the area of the World Trade Center. And uh, it was just, we hadn't seen each other for many years, most of us anyway. Uh, it was, it was, a, it was a pretty emotional thing. And we played. And it was just, it was just, it was, it was a really emotional, wonderful kind of thing. You know, the wives came and the, you know, the whole thing. And we just, I, I, I think Larry posted a photo from this on his Facebook oh, after he, it happened. Th there is. Yeah. I don't know. I can get it to you guys if you want. I don't. There is a. I know I have a video because there were videos taken that day, but I remember Mark or Larry posting on YouTube a video. I don't know. Maybe if you search Larry Hama Chaotix on YouTube, you'll find something. But there was a, a couple of, you know, uh, videos that we put on of that historic day. And then years later, we had another one, a much smaller one in a recording studio. It was just a small one. But the, the one at Larry's apartment was this big, it was this, this great bacchanalia. It was just a wonderful kind of, kind of thing, seeing everybody together. <laughs>
And did you sort of because most of you were from like comic, working comics at the at the time? Was it was it sort of one was the day job, another one was the fun side, hobby passion? Yeah. Or, or was there much? Yeah. Was there much was. thinking about comics and things when you were doing the band or when you were in the band? It was all band. No, no, it was the band. You know, we it was the band, and and at that time I was already. I was already in the licensing division of special projects. So I was out of, I had a lot of contact with the comics, but I was no longer in the process of uh, producing uh, comics. And it just started in such a weird way. My office was next to Larry's, but I was doing uh, special projects and licensing. They wanted, and I was kind of dressing up, you know, for the role because I was, you know, I was seeing clients and things like that. So I, I had one or two suits that I, I just water shreds that I would wear. <laughs> and they wanted me, management wanted me upstairs. Marvel was on two or three stories at the time, two or three, two or three floors. They wanted me upstairs with the, with the execs, which, which is where I belong because it was licensing and it, was, it had really little to do with the production of comics. But I insisted, no, I have to be downstairs. I have to be near all the art files. Da, 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 da. I just didn't want to go upstairs. So I, I was coming in and these. You know, suited up for the occasion, and Larry was right next door to me, and he was editing crazy at the time, maybe also Conan, but certainly crazy. And uh, we, you know, we, we we knew each other. You know, we stuck our heads in, in each other's office and stuff. And I was in his office one day, and he was talking. It may have been to Gary or Bobby London. They were talking about getting together and playing music. And I, I said, I asked Gary, so, you know, Larry, you know, oh, you guys got a band stuff here? He said, we're trying to get something together, but it's been slow and stuff. He said, you know, do you play? I said, well, I played drums in junior high school, but that was 40 <laughs> years ago. And I had played school. And uh, I had a snake. He said, do you want to, you want to be in a band? And I said, sure. And it was, and we had our first rehearsal. I remember I brought my snare drum to the studio and it was space. A studio that we rented at that at that building that I told you about for the evening, and um, it was the seeds of, of of us getting together, and um, we just said, "Oh, we're gonna have it. Uh, we're gonna start a band." I had no business playing regularly with anyone, um, <laughs> but you know, it was in the spirit of, "Hey, we're just gonna have fun," and we couldn't get it off the ground. You know, oh, I know this guy; he'll come and this guy come, but we need a lead singer. Larry said, he can't do it. I said, I certainly can't sing. Uh, Gary, he couldn't do it. We're waiting for this guy, Brick Mason. So, and I, who I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know Gary. I didn't even know Bobby. I knew their work, but I didn't, I, I had never met any of them, but I had been, you know, fans of their work for years. And they said, we, we have to wait for Brick Mason because he's going to be our lead singer. I go, who's Brick Mason? Well, he's this, well, where is he? You know, oh, he lives in, the, well, where is he? I know he lives in this, where is he? He was a storybook artist, and he was out of town doing storyboards for the movie Annie. And, and so this is 19, I don't know, 84 or something like this. So, well, that's incredible. So we waited a few weeks until he, you know, he, he came, came back to the city, and the band started, and we just threw ourselves into it, just like head, head first, some covers at first, and the guy had an idea for a song, and it just, it just kind of swelled, and it just became you know, this kind of uh, you know, boys' night out. Kind of thing, but it it all just started from my point of view as a lot. You want to be in a band, sure. You know, who doesn't? 
So shall we shall we do the rewind back and, and find the origin story of how it was that you happened to land at Marvel and be in the position where you're somehow uh, it's responsible for the licensing of GIO? Okay, I'll take up to that. I started at Marvel in in, in 1975. It was a long it was a it was a long time ago, and I'm I'm not ashamed to say it was purely a, a, an act of nepotism that got me in there. I was working in a toy factory on Long Island, and I was cut. And it was it was I think it was, it was during the summer. It was really hot. And I was coming home just every day, just filthy and dust and whatever. And um, I my my I was speaking with my mom, and I lived in Queens at the time. My, my folks lived on Long Island, and she said, "How's it going?" I said, "You know, it's fine." And how's work? You know, it's it's hot and grimy, and you know whatever. I finished college. I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I finished college. So this was, you know, within a year or so after I finished college, two years or so. And I, I was just slumming around. I delivered phone books for a job. And I just do an odd. I worked in a, veg in a vegetable store. I was just, you know, like figuring out what I, you know, really what I wanted to do. And what I basically wanted to do was save up enough money and just go back for my master's. So my mother was just, you know, like old Jewish mothers. And she said, oh, you're working so hard. And, you know, I know. She calls me one day. She said, I spoke to your uncle, Danny. Danny it was Danny Crespi. Danny Crespi was the head letterer at Marvel on SNF at the time and had been for several years. She's my mom's brother. Danny lived in, I was very close to Danny and his kids because we all came from the Bronx. Danny still lived in the Bronx. My parents no longer did and I didn't, but I was very close to Danny. His son and I were you know, very close. A young, he had a younger son who was like my younger brother. And um, she said, "I spoke to Uncle Danny, and I told him you know your, the plight <laughs> that just you're enduring and you're suffering." And I asked him if he had any jobs, you know, if there were any jobs at Marvel. And he said, "Well, we're, we're looking for someone to do paste ups and mechanicals. Did Nell ever do that?" So my mother told me I, I knew nothing about Marvel. So my my mother told me, and I, I spoke to Danny, and um, I said, yeah, I said I did that on you know college uh, publications and in high school I did based up some mechanicals. I was I, I was on the, the high school newspaper and I did literary magazines in college and stuff. So I did those basic kind of you know kind of thing. So I, I they got me an interview and I met um, Saul Brodsky. And I tell you guys, I I didn't know anything about I knew not, I read I read DCs when I was a kid. When they were ten cents, when they went up to twelve cents, th that was it. It just it blew my economics of what I could do with a quarter. See, with a quarter at ten cents, I bought two comics and five pieces of bazooka bubblegum. <laughs> and I went up to twelve cents. It was just like one piece of gum is isn't going to cut it. It really that was it. That when people say when did you stop reading, whatever month DC went to twelve cents. That was it. It was my last. That was my last comic thing. And I, I, I was a Batman and Flash guy and Justice League guy. And I bought them very re re regularly. And you know, when we finished, we just passed them around the neighborhood. So I went up to to meet Saul Brodsky, and we talked and everything. This was, I think, early December of of seventy five. And um, he said, "Sure, we'll give you a shot." And during the interview, he said, "Well, what do you know about comics?" And I said, "I read them as a kid." He thought that was amusing. He said, "And," <laughs> and I told him, "I said, I, I never, I've never read a, a Marvel comic, so like, and I got to admit to you, in college, friends were pushing one guy in particular, a hippie type guy like myself, was trying to push Doctor Strange on me. 
So that would have been 72, 73, whoever was doing, maybe Frank Brunner. I don't know who was, who was doing it at the time. But I just said, get away. Just leave, leave me alone. Just take this and go away and grow up, by the way. So uh, Saul hires me, but he hires me on a trial basis. And he really hired me only because I was Danny's nephew. I mean, I did pay stuff some mechanicals, but I'm sure millions of other kids who did pay stuff some mechanicals and new comics. He could have gotten also. So he did it as a favor to Danny. So he, he hires me on a temporary basis in mid-December. And uh, he says, you're coming twice a week, and we'll see how you make out, and blah, blah, blah. You learn whatever we need to teach you. So I stopped going to my, my toy job in, in, uh, on Long Island, and I went into this city. So the new year comes around, and they hire me like the first week of January. Sure, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll bring you on. Years later, I was to learn that the reason he just didn't flat out hire me in December was because they didn't want to pay me holiday time for the Christmas vacation. <laughs> and then as I got to know Saul, it was just like, oh, that, and Stan. I said, oh, that makes sense. So they brought me into uh, into do the production work on reprints. That was my job. And also to paste up all the letters pages and the monthly bullpen bulletins. That was my job. But we had quite a few reprints going at the time, maybe an eight or nine. We were doing superhero stuff. We had Marvel Tales and Marvel superheroes. And we were doing a Daredevil reprint. And there were the monster things we were doing, the Ditko and Kirby stuff. So it was, it was a, you know, a lot. There was a lot going on. So it was, a, it was a really busy job. My immediate supervisor was this wonderful lady named um, Irene Vartanoff, who, again, I didn't know at the time, but learned, you know, over, over time that she was, you know, really one of the early fan people, you know, who really helped, you know, launch things, get things going, you know, from a fan perspective, fanzines and that kind of thing. And um, so I, you know, I sat there, you know, I did my job. I was meeting all these people, Marie Severin and, just all, all these guys, John Romita, they were sitting next to me. I was having lunch with them. And I didn't I didn't know who they were. They were just I, were people I was having lunch with. Marie was a doll. Yeah, she adopted me as like, you know, like a little underling that she was mentoring. John Romita, we chat baseball, we talk. All these other people, Frank Giacoya, Mike Esposito, all these guys, he saw. And I just didn't, I didn't, they were just guys to me. They were just people I liked. You know, hung out with we'd have a drink or something like that it really was over time and even now i'm still learning like oh saul drew that you know something from the early from, you know from the 50s or so the same thing with you know with marie you know oh, marie, marie did that so many years before i got to marvel and um but i just kind of you know learned about them you know just for being nice people and i developed a lot of you know nice relationships with them one of the most interesting things about the job was Irene was put in charge of organizing the, the warehouse, which contained all of the original art that Marvel owned at the time. And she said, you know, look, Mel, you come down, you help me organize the thing, because the, the room is a mess. And it was. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 12 by 18 envelopes with artwork in them, thrown randomly, haphazardly, on the floor of this warehouse on... I think it was 21st Street off 6th Avenue in this really dumpy old industrial building. And it was just a mess. And this was, this was Marvel's legacy in, on, you know, on paper. So she did, you know, the lion's share of the work because I always had to be at the office, you know, doing my, you know, my regular work on the reprints. But 
my first readings of many of these comics, including Amazing Fantasy 15, was reading the original boards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the, uh, where, where were all of the negatives kept? The negatives were kept um, at, along with the, the, the proofs. I don't think they were kept at the warehouse. They were kept at another facility because we needed to have them accessible for reprint purposes. You know, one of the editors would say, you know, we're going to do, you know, this Kirby story on Groot. And he located where it was at. <clears throat> we had to have some, oh, the, the negatives, <clears throat> which were rolled proofs. If, I, if that's what the form they, they were in. And they were, I guess we did have negatives, but they were, it was only in black and white in, in, in positive form. They were rolled proofs as in tubes. Which and, and each and a and a, a negative of a single page or a cover of eleven by seventeen art or larger was oh, that those. same no. size. The the only copies of those, I I don't remember negatives of the insides of the books. I remember negatives of the covers at reduced size. Nothing was done that that big. They were reduced okay. size, like print size. But the the proofs of the books, the interiors of the books which might have included the ads, I'm not sure, were proofs, they were rolled proofs. There were four on a, the way a printer would, you know, would do it. I think we was doing like four up. And he'd have like, there'd be like these big flats rolled in, in tubes. They were in a tube. Because the paper, the, these large sheets were rolled and it was on a slick kind of paper. And those, that was Marvel's library. So in addition to, and believe me, that the, that the originals were by no means complete runs of anything. I mean, there were huge gaps, you know, which kind of makes you wonder who walked off with this, you know, over the years. So you may have, you know, Spider-Man 62, and the next book that showed up was 84. Just like, well, what, you know, what, where is that other stuff? And over the years, you kind of learn people pilfering it. Sometimes it was never returned from the printer, because this was all that, you know, these things were returned to Marvel's offices. They'd sit on a shelf in at Marvel, and months later, when someone who was my predecessor, the guy I replaced, his job was to take these stuff down to the warehouse. He took it down and just threw it. He he literally threw it on the floor of, the, of this place. So I reset up all these metal shelves, and we screw the shelves together. And as I said, she did the lion's share of the work, but I'd be sitting there drinking, you know, having my sandwich for lunch, reading these original boards, big thing, you know, the Kirby monster stuff, the early superhero stuff. But the amazing fantasy, you know, and she was educating me as I was reading it. She said, you know how important that book was? And she'd tell me about it. So I give her a lot of, you know, a lot of thanks for, you know, kind of getting me um, knowledgeable about the early history of Marvel. And, uh, yeah, so we did that. And uh, I worked in the bullpen for a couple, of, a couple of years, you know, made some really great friends and such. And then about two, two and a half years into my stay there, Stan was still in New York. He um, he didn't have much to do. Well, he had not, very little to do with the comics, as far as I saw. But he'd stick his head into the bullpen and you know chat for us for a while. And um, I'd have lunch with him occasionally. A couple of us would have lunch with him. He'd invite us in. We went to the same high school at different times. So there was a connection there. So we would sing our high school song together and that kind of thing. Um, I, I wasn't one of his favorites, but you know we, he was always he was always nice and always you know friendly to me. And um, I went to him one day, although Saul, my, my, immediately, my immediate supervisor was Irene. Her, 
our group supervisor was John Verporten, who ran the the, uh, the bullpen and was an inker also. Saul was a boss above him. And then ultimately, I guess Stan could call any shot that he, you know, if, that he wanted to. But he, like I said, he wasn't very involved. John Verporten was really the boss of the bullpen. And, uh, but I went to Stan. I kind of hopped over a cup. I went to Stan. I said, look, Stan, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the bullpen thing. And just, I, there's no place for me to go in the company. If nothing opens up soon, I'm going to probably go back to school. I wasn't telling that as a threat. I was just kind of hinting, you know, if something opens up, you know, let me know. And he said, speak to Solly Brodsky because something's opening up in special projects. So I went to Saul and Saul was, you know, he said, yeah, this guy Bob is leaving. I'm going to need someone. Are you interested in it? And I, I said, yeah, you know, very much so. And um, he gave me the job. And uh, a small part of the job, well, half part of the job involved the licensing, product development end of things. At the time, and this, this reflected back in G.I. Joe later, a few years later, we didn't have a licensing department because we didn't have a real robust licensing program. We had items out there, but it was real haphazard. Deals were made over a handshake, over dinner and stuff. You know, it's just, it wasn't a very organized kind of thing. The, our licensing agent was Columbia Pictures Merchandising. They had offices a couple of blocks away. And they did licensing not only for Columbia Pictures, but for other companies like ourselves who didn't have big uh, in-house programs. They would do the licensing, meaning they would sell a license and then that was it. There was really no oversight of the quality control uh, of products and stuff. So uh, I walked into that uh, in special projects. We did calendars. We did pocketbooks. Anything that wasn't a, a pure, we did posters. We also did the trade paperbacks and Son of Origins and, you know, those books, The Origins of Marvel, Sons of Origins. Um, comics marvel way for, for for fireside that was yeah those were for fireside you packaged it and fireside actually printed it actually published it yeah and and uh yeah so, and sold it into you know into bookstores the paperback things we're doing these small size paper <laughs> paperbacks. Is this, is this where you'd put like two panels per page like rearrange a six yeah. panel that, that, right, yeah like, exactly three and, pages of a tiny paperback yeah we uh that was with grosset and dunlap we did Spider. We did Spider Man, Hulk. We did Conan. A number of titles, maybe FF. We did a number of, of, of titles, and um, yes, that, that, that's what we did. So I was handling, you know, the trafficking of that, and you know, making sure that the artwork was was you know, getting done, and, and it, that it didn't look too silly. And then there was the licensing, you know, aspect of it. But within a couple of years, so I was I was the only I was the contact person for every licensor. Um, once they signed the deal with um, with Columbia Pictures to say we're going to do underoos, Marvel underoos, you know, sh- you know, garments, um, Columbia Pictures was out of it, and everything went through through me. I was the only guy. I was licensed. I was it. I was I was Marvel's licensing face to the you know to the world. Now, yeah, okay. You had a psychology degree, mm-hmm. but not a business degree. Or not a communications degree. So, um, did you feel like you had a natural affinity? Did you feel overwhelmed? How did you feel with this new job? I, I just, I kind of, I took it in stride. I'm, I'm a, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, and, um, but I've got, a, I, I think I've got a good, I've got a good, per, uh, you know, um, uh, 
a sense of, of working with people, dealing with people. I'm not a, a, a hard nose. I look for compromise, you know, where one is called for. I'm fair, I, I, you know, I think. And um, I was polite and courteous. I was professional. I was, you know, I had those kind of qualities even without, you know, a degree or, or, or training in it. And then in terms of the actual deals, the, the dollars and cents, were you helping to make those deals or were you running that by someone in, in the business office? Yeah, uh, I had nothing to do with, with, with uh, at the time with the selling of, of, of a license. I'd get a contract. Um, oh, eventually we took that away from, we hired two in-house people to do sales at, at, in Marvel. So we started building our own licensing department beyond myself we took that deal away from columbia pictures when it lapsed we got our, our own licensing department they would go out and sell licenses i would get and and contracts would pass through our legal department so yeah there was a bit you know business legal end of it i'd get a, a copy of a contract saying we've just signed the deal with um whoever xyz company uh, to make um t-shirts okay fine from there, I would take it, I would contact those people, tell them what the expectations of the program were, offer my services, whatever you need, art, da, 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 da. Um, if you're nearby, I'll come visit your facilities if you like, send in you know, some of your production people, explain to me um, the limitations you have, you know, especially um, with, with fabric in those days, like bed sheets and t-shirts and stuff like that. Printing was kind of primitive. You really couldn't do a real lot on fabric at the time. Like now you could print, you know, type, you know, two-point type and everything is crystal clear and you could reproduce, you know, amazing imagery. Um, it wasn't that way in, you know, 1980. So I learned through these people and I did a lot of, you know, you know, research on myself and asking, you know, what I thought were the right questions, especially about printing on fabric and sculpting. What are the limitations of sculpting a, a Hulk bank head? you know, a plastic head of sculpting a, a tiny figure. What can they do? What can't they do? You know, that all figured into the job of me being flexible and understanding what a manufacturer could do with the color of, of plastic. Well, it's not the it's not the, the exact blue of Spider-Man. I can't reproduce that blue because of that, that, that. Okay, let's make a compromise. If you can't do that, we want this product out, we'll make some compromise. I'll pick, you know, another blue and you tell me if you can do it. So it was a real learning process for me. And this is across a range of hundreds of, of kinds of products, you know, pr printing on fabric, plastics, uh, you know, back to school stuff, just tons. And it was a, a, an amazing array of products that we had out there. Were you only traveling around New York for this? No, I did some, I, I was out in the Midwest a few times. I was down in Florida. Um, that was about it. And you and were, I'm sorry. You were not going to comic book conventions. I was going to the licensing conventions, the licensing show. I was out of. I was out of comics. I was I was coloring freelance. At night, you know, I'd ask the editors, "Hey, you guys got a got any, you need a hand? You know, call. yeah, you know, here's you know, we got a an eight page backup. You know, could you do sure? Because I always wanted to keep my hand in comics. Because although, so in a few short years. I really became, I really immersed myself in, in you know, in comics, in comic book dumb, in, in the craft of it, the, the people involved in it. 
I just, it's just the whole thing, the history of it. It just became this fascinating thing who, you know, a few years early, I just, I just, I was doing other stuff. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't following comics. And, you know, I just was, now it was just like, wow, you know, this is really something. And it was the people. Had I not known, you know, the quality and the the kind of people that were behind it, it it would have been, you know, nice product, you know, to read or something. But I knew the people who were creating this stuff. Before G.I. Joe shows up, Marvel publishes Star Wars comics, Godzilla, uh, Conan, and uh, Shogun Warriors. Did any of those cross your plate? And if so, does that have any uh, sort of parallel uh, for for you in that job with what happened with G.I. Joe? No, some of those licenses, probably Transformers and I guess Joe, I know helped the the comic book bottom line quite a bit. Um, But none of the, the, the properties that you mentioned uh, you know, impacted anything, you know, that I was doing. I'm surprised to say that Shogun came out before Joe. Yeah. yeah. Really? Wow. Because wow. Joe's, yeah. Joe's 82, and I think Shogun Warriors is um, 79. I need to differentiate for myself. Companies that were licensing their properties to Marvel to make comics with uh, companies like Hanes that might make undershirts or, or underwear that we're going to license from Marvel Spider-Man to put on them. That's what you were doing. That's yes. what, when you say the licensing department, you mean sort of going out from Marvel. Right. Well, we were the licensor, the owner of the, of the property licensing out, bringing, yeah, we were you know, bringing money in the properties that you mentioned did well for the comics. Well, you know, the Star Wars, uh, I would imagine, you know, Help the company, you know, substantially. I, I was in the bullpen when, yeah, I was I was in the bullpen because I remember doing production on the Star Wars, those jumbo size. Uh, I forgot what they were called. I sold a bunch of them recently. You know, this, 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 the, the the treasury size editions. Oh, the comics. The comics. I'm sorry. Yeah, I did production work on on a bunch of those, including Star Wars. Yeah, we went, we immediately, re- when Star Wars came out, we immediately, yeah, the reprints were just incredible on that. We just immediately starting in, in printing, reprinting them in, in all sorts of different forms and stuff. But again, that was, you know, that was a, probably 77 or something, right? 77, 78 in there. Yeah. Um, Mark, it sounds like chronologically we're about to get to G.I. Joe. Um, mm-hmm. Before, Mark, before we ask the G.I. Joe question, uh, anything so far? Do you have a question for Nell? No, no. I think we're all, we're sort of uh, making the trajectory towards GI Joe happening at this point. So, so I'm uh, right. I'm sort of waiting with bated breath as to what points in uh, in this in this journey the GI Joe license gets on your radar. Okay, so our program had grown pretty large. We were now probably five of us in the department couple of account execs doing sales. Doug Pollenbaum was my boss. I was no longer with Saul. The, the, the point had come where um, we grew the department so large that Saul said, you know, we're killing you with all this other extra work, these calendars and all this other stuff. You're going to be part of licensing and you'll have to go upstairs. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll you know, let's see. I'm sorry to you know, let you go and you know, say goodbye. I learned a lot about business from Saul. Um, 
but I, you know, I, I was a reasonably smart guy. I figured a lot of stuff out, you know, for myself, budgets and, and scheduling and, and yeah, that kind of thing. So we were doing, we were doing well. And we heard about Hasbro, I believe, this is the way I, I remember it. And it's been 40 years, I think, or more. Hasbro approached Marvel with the with their idea for their new revamped GI Joe, okay, they came to us, I believe, in the interest of, hey Marvel, do you want to do a comic from us for for us? In other words, in some rough fashion, do you want to license the rights to Joe to do the comic book? I think that's the way it started. Meanwhile, licensing, we were still uh, we still weren't quite with Joe yet. I think it went through the comics first. I guess Marvel, maybe it was our publisher, Mike Hudson, Mike Hobson, or maybe Shooter was in charge. I guess Shooter was was the editor in chief then. Anyway, it, it would you know sure let's you know let's explore that you know that opportunity, and maybe about that same time was and if we strike a deal, could you guys handle the licensing, the selling of the licenses because we Hasbro don't have a licensing department. Okay, well sure you know. We'd be glad to. That, those were the seeds of it, from what I remember. I then remember a meeting. I think it was in Portucket. I think uh, at their at Hasbro offices. I I was there. Larry was there. I think Shooter was there. I, I believe Archie Goodwin was there. There may be four or five of us. And I think it was at Portucket. I don't. I don't remember. And they showed us comps of the the new. Um, you know, the new concept, you know, this new joke. Drawings, comps, you mean yeah. drawings. Yeah. And the old, you know, instead of doing it on a laptop, you know, these days, you know, these are on boards, big boards. And they were drawings of a, of a couple of characters of the Joes, this guy and that guy. And uh, they showed them to us. And the, the several Marvel guys who were there were just kind of, you know, we were taking it all in. And it just seemed like it. All at once, we all seem to say, who do they fight? You know? <laughs> and the Hasbro guy said, what? what do you mean, who do they fight? He said, well, if you want us to do a comic book, you need, a, you, you need an adversary. They've got to do something. And then th that's when I think the floodgates opened for Hasbro realizing um, we need these guys more than just putting out, we, we need these guys, need these guys. And I, I believe, I think, I think it was Archie who suggested, well, how about, and then he may, he just out of his head, you know, an evil organization, whatever he, he said. And I, that's what put us on, on the track of, of um, you know, developing Joe's, you know, ad adversaries. And then uh, in quick, I, it, quick, it happened quickly after that, from my point of view, Larry was given the task of, uh, of doing the bios and everything and developing that stuff not only because he's an incredibly creative guy but you know he had military background and training and stuff and he served and um while that was going hasbro struck the deal with our licensing guys okay you handle the licensing and it was like you know Nell, we're going to be doing licensing with um with hasbro which was great it just you know filled that out you know our plate at, at a i believe at a time when marvel's uh, licensing potency was on the decline, I believe. Yeah, I, I remember some slow days there while Joe was ramping up 
well, the Joe licensing program was ramping up that um, Hulk spike, you know, for the time being, we had shot our load. We, we did a major deal with Mattel because I, I think Kenner did a deal with DC. And in response, we struck a deal with Mattel. This was probably in 81 or 82, but it was a, it was a very hasty made deal. Mattel really didn't put a lot behind it. And Kenner, I think, did probably did fairly well with the, you know, with um, with the DC guys. I think, yeah. So we were kind of slow at the time, because I remember they asked me to do sales. They said, "Nelly, you got to put everyone out there we can to do sales." I said, "Well, I'll make calls. I'll do whatever I can," but we, it was slow for us at the time with the Marvel characters. Do you remember uh, the first months of? licensing gi joe out to third-party companies to make products that weren't going to be marvel's comic and weren't going to be hasbro's action figure line right yeah those let's call those people licensees i do and and it was a real scramble because we had no artwork we had nothing and you know having done this for years already yeah what are you what are you, you going to put on the t-shirt what are you going to you know so uh, but you know, Hasbro was eager to go, and we just we flew by the side of by you know by you know the, by our pants, the seat of our pants. Hasbro, um, and already we by this time by the time we act actively started getting going, I was working with uh, Bob Prupis and Kirk Bazigian. I'm sure those guys those names ring ring with you guys. Kirk was Kirk was I was I was thirty or so. Kirk was probably around the same age, and we were on the same page. We knew that, you know, we wanted this to be a, a big success. Obviously, you know, in some way, maybe Kirk was, you know, putting his future, you know, on this thing. You know, if you, if you get, if you're able to take um, credit for launching a major boys line, you know, that really turns things on, you know, the, the industry on its head. That's a, you know, that's a good thing for your career from Kirk's point of view. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, you know, snowballing it now. This is what I'm, I'm doing his thinking. For me, it made no difference. No one's was going to say, oh, you know, no one's responsible, you know, for being the, you know, the, the licensory. But for Kirk, that's a big thing, you know, um, because having a boy's license with a, a major boy's toy license was a big, big thing. Having a major, because you had Star Wars out there, you had Marvel, DC, a boy's line of, action figures was huge. I mean, it was, it was, it was critical to the industry just as having a major girls line, you know, was, um, to, you know, to all, you know, all the companies, whether it was Bobby or, you know, some of these other, you know, girl things. Um, so, you know, in conversations with Kirk, I said, you know, we, we've got to get guys, we've got to get out, you know, people are selling, we're telling them this is the greatest thing since Swiss cheese. Okay, great. You know, show me, <laughs> we have nothing. So the, the only thing we had, to show and to give for, to people to reproduce, well, you know, that's the bottom line, was those paintings of the characters that appeared on the blister cards of the, the action figures. And it was Hector Garrido, I forget, yeah. Garrido? Yeah. And it was it was very dynamic stuff. It was, you know, good stuff. But I'm thinking, but not everyone could reproduce a, a fully painted, you know, paint a painting, which is what it was, on their, their item, they, you know, on whether it was on fabric, it was on. I need line art. I, I need like a, I need comic book art that you could drop color into. 
you know, the simplest thing, like for packaging and, you know, whatever. Well, whatever. <laughs> we went ahead and I would tell Kirk, look, my guys just signed someone to do whatever, decals or whatever, whatever it was. Give me what you got. He says, all right, get in touch with our ad agency, which I think their name was Sunbow. Sunbow? Sunbow was... Sunbow was the animation company, Griffin Bacall, Griffin Bacall. the ad agency, but the two companies uh, significantly overlapped. Okay. So I was getting from them C prints, which were good quality prints of, um, of the artwork. They made me three by fives of, of Hector's paintings. And at the time, maybe there were eight or 10. Yeah. Cause I, this was 80, 80, 81. So this was the first year of rollout. So, you know, they had, artwork of the figures of all the figures i guess well most of the figures at the time for you know for their first year of, of, of the action figures and whether son or whoever i would call whoever was there whoever my contact was and said you could just send me eight sets of everything you know of everything you got so i get a package of you know, all these nice c prints and stuff and i write a letter to the company the licensee who just signed a license with us and uh you know said well here's your artwork you know let's work together and I get calls like, I, I, I'm doing color forms. I, I can't use this, you know, for those little color forms things. So I told Kirk, I said, this isn't cutting the mustard. And, and you know that because we both, we were in the same boat. He was you know, like, wow, what are we going to do? So I started hiring guys to do artwork for these licensees. And I remember working with Herb Trimpey because Herb, you know, had done, you know, the, the first comics. And he was also great for, um, for doing licensed art because his line work was so solid and consistent and held color very well for, you know, for simple reproductions and things like that. So I remember for color forms, Herb did that set and there were a couple of other licensees. I wish I, I could remember. I couldn't remember for Carson where I hired, it was probably Herb to do artwork for their special, for these people's special project, uh, pro, um, for their, pro, you know, for their properties, for the, for their, pro, um, uh, for their items. And uh, so that's how we got by. But it was really, you know, by the skin of our teeth, I think Marvel went into maybe the second year. We did a, a second year of licensing. But I think by the third year, Hasbro had ramped up their own licensing department because they had developed or were doing toys that required or that had risen high enough to, to warrant licensing on their own. I, I forgot what the, what the items were, but they had they had significant toy lines that, they could now license those, you know, those properties. So they built their own, you know, in-house licensing. And I think we did two two years. I believe we did two years there. But I'm I'm most familiar with the first year's product because the second year pro product probably came out in the third year, and I was, you know, I had left Marvel in December of '83. Because during like '82 into '83, like GI Joe sort of became like pretty much the biggest selling comic one of the most popular cartoons sort of uh, being being shown for, for the kids with their, their first miniseries and, and also one of the most popular toy lines for in the boys' toys market. Were, were the license, potential licensees then sort of coming to you and, try, and, and sort of trying to bite your hand off and get a piece of the action? Yeah, I remember the, it was immediate. It seemed to be immediate. The response, it, it seemed to me, was overwhelming and and you know not that i i 
you know, I'm any, any kind of business with, but as soon as I saw what they were doing with Hasbro, I, I just, I just felt this was it. You know, I had the utmost confidence in, in, in Bob, both guys and Kurt, of course, because I, you know, we grew to know each other a little, you know, in dealings back and forth over, you know, a period of many months. It was just like, these guys are really on the ball and, and they, you know, they, they have realistic goals. Their objectives seem, you know, real clear. And plus, this is a freaking great, it's a great toy. I mean, it's just, a, it's just so clever. Uh, you know, the work that Larry did added immeasurably to, you know, they, it, it, it gave life to a, you know, to a, a three and a quarter inch, three and three, whatever it was, you know, piece of plastic. It all fit together. The, the team was just, a, you know, the creative team on Joe was just, was terrific. And, um, yeah. I, I got, I, you know, I, I, I tossed so much of this, of paperwork and letters and um, charts and things that I had it just, you know, in house cleaning over these, I, you know, in, at times like this, I wish I could pull out and say, look, this is the list of licensees we had by, you know, by, by May 82. It was substantial. It, I, I, for some, I'm thinking 25 in the first year. I'm thinking 25. It doesn't mean they had product that year, but they were signed in the first year. That's you know that's that's considerable for a property that's untested. You know it's untested. You know, boy, boy the number it. the number I've got for the first year is twenty three. So oh, yes. okay, there you go. Because I remember generating that list and having it, you know, typeset and whatever. But it was, yeah, because oh, this because okay, so. this was going to be a press release that Hasbro. Uh, I can't remember if this was just about the toys or if this was about the cartoon coming a year, a year later. But you know. Hasbro could say, Hasbro could brag, we have this toy line, we have this comic, we also have 23 companies lining up to do, you know, sleeping bag or stickers or, you know, Presto Magics or lunch boxes and on and on and on. You know, uh, Revell did those model kits, right, right, which were not scaled the same size as the actual action figure and vehicles. And you know, sometimes I think we fans forget, we sort of take for granted that G.I. Joe was a hit out of the gate because with 2020 hindsight, we can say, of course it was a hit out of the gate. But a lot of it was Hasbro and partners building the hit. Mm. And if, you know, there hadn't been a comic book, there wouldn't have been any story if there had been the comic book and the toys, but none of the licensees uh, then you know, if you went to the store, you, you'd miss G.I. Joe, right? You'd only see it if you were there where there were comic books or, or toys. But, you know, I was just at a G.I. Joe convention last weekend and I had forgotten. And I don't know. I don't know what year it is. 83, 84, 85, 86. But it's a tiny, tiny bar of soap. And it came shrink wrapped on top of a tiny, tiny gray plastic box and printed on top of it i think is a, a vehicle painting from 85 and this dealer had five of them and i i thought i need to buy that because that's <laughs> a gi joe thing that i didn't have as a kid and i don't have as an adult collector and surely this is going to be cheap because this is a toy convention this guy's got all sorts of stuff he's not really focused on just one thing he's got so many of these too many of these i you know what's this going to be a dollar ten dollars and uh, and i forgot i forgot to go back and there there's no price tag on them and also I, i'm drowning in stuff so as much as i would have <laughs> one more gi joe thing from the 80s 
it's actually okay. Also, I guess the argument is I should get two, one to use. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, like in, there's this, there's this concept in, in marketing and advertising where you have, you need, you need a certain number of hits, of like touch points where the audience, you know, it's like, you'll go see a movie or you'll go buy a book if you see or hear the author or the star on like talk shows like five times, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, they were promoting that on that talk show last night. Like, oh, they're promoting that on this other talk show today. Or, oh, this newspaper has an article about this book or movie. And then you sort of forget. And if if you if, if it hits you enough times, you think, you know, I'm going to go see that movie. I, I, yeah. I've, I've heard so much about it. And if you're a kid or a parent right. in 82, 83, and your kid's talking about G.I. Joe and you're in the other aisle at the drugstore and you see G.I. Joe soap. Kid says, I want that. Right. Say, oh, you know, little Billy's been talking about G.I. Joe. I guess I'll get him this soap. Right. And it, and it sort of adds, it feeds the, it feeds the, the machine the, the, in a good way, I say. Feeds right. The yeah. Yeah. I think you're right on. And, and maybe that's having seen all that come, starting to come together. I think that's, that's what, that's what convinced me that there's a lot of people involved who seem to know what they're doing. And that's why I was I was really assured it was gonna it was gonna be a hit. In again, in terms of of artwork, because that's you know that's the thing I was struggling with, you know, daily. I remember sending out kits with copies of the of the first issue. I ordered I special ordered from the printer. I got permission from I don't know who. I said I need a few hundred copies of of Joe One for licensing. Can I get them? They said sure, no, no problem. We'll, we'll ask the printer to whatever. So the boxes came and I had whatever they were, 50 or 100 in, in a box. And I was sending out two or three to each licensee. Like, hey, look, you know, look, this exciting stuff that's going on. And, you know, this wonderful artwork and this great story. You know, I'm glad you're part of it and things like that. We were also sending it out to sending material, not artwork, though, because it was, it was too costly. But in order to get, you know, someone interested in, in the property, you know, a, a, a manufacturer, I'd send out. So, a comic book generally with a letter, you know, give us a call. This is going to be exciting that that so-and-so is aboard. You know, if I could pull out a big name, you know, this is Hasbro, you know, behind this, the might of Hasbro. And we've got these two or three licensees. If they had names, you know, like you were saying, oh, really? These people are, oh, that's worth checking out. So not only were we trying to deal with, um, with personally, sales was trying to, you know, convince anyone to buy a license. But in, in my small way, I was doing the same thing of like, let me see if, so and so, you know, this, the guy who this guy who does you know, inflatable swim things, you know, pool pool accessories, and send him a, co- a couple of copies and say, you know, we've got Hasbro behind this, Marvel Comics is behind this, you know, you know, check us out. So I was sending out comics. I sent out bundles of the first one, the second, and maybe the third. And then I think I I, I left Marvel in mid December, mid December of eighty three. In fact, the picture of, of, of the Chaotix playing may have been a couple of weeks after I, I left Marvel. Because a couple of weeks after I left Marvel was Christmas, and I, I remember the, the, um, the band playing at, at the Marvel Christmas party. And it was like homecoming for me. <laughs> it was like... Help us out with this timeline, because you're referring to leaving Marvel in 83, right. but you continued to, or you went back to color and and edit 
Yeah. So what, where'd you go? What'd you do? How'd you oh, it, it really, things really got interesting at, at 80, at the end of 80, you know, as time was going on, I was just, I was figuring, uh, you know, again, I was in the same position as I had been several years before. You can't go any further in what you're doing because you, you, you are the, you are this director of licensing, the manager of licensing and product development. You're, you're it. I didn't want to do sales. It was open to me. Neldy wanted to do sales. I, I, I'm not a salesman. I just, I wasn't, I kind of looked at myself as, you know, kind of a, you know, creative guy. So I told my boss who had replaced Doug Pollenbaum, ironically, the guy who was now my boss, his name was Jim Robinson. I had met Jim several years ago when he was running the Underoos program for whatever company owned on Underoos. And he and I hooked up then. He again, he was a young guy at the time, and uh, he was coming to me. I was a licensor. He was a licensee at Underoos, and we and I started working with him to develop whatever Underoos we were doing at the time. And we became friends even after the project was over. We'd have lunch, we'd hang out, we'd have a drink together, and suddenly. Marvel hires him several years later, so he's he's now my boss. And uh, I told him, I said, I'm not, I can't go anywhere here. You know, I'm just like you know up against the wall, and I just uh, you know it's not like me to to hang around. I want something different. I want something you know better. So I left in '83, but I had known I've made so many contacts in the toy industry over the years, and had you know a decent enough reputation with you know with a lot of people. Talking toys, electronic toys that talked, were, were now the rage. There was this thing called Teddy Ruxpin. You guys remember? I think it was a bear, some sort of primate. I don't know what, what the hell he was. <laughs> but he talked. He was an animatronic. You know, it was a, and I said, you know what? I know people who, who, I know people who are doing these toys, manufacturers who manufacture. If I could hook up with the right people, the people to do the software for it, I may have something there. So a few months passed. I was doing some coloring for Marvel because I left Marvel with at least, I think I was coloring one book. I don't know if it was, trans it might have been Transformers at the time. I don't know. But I had one monthly book. Transformers starts in 84. Okay. Then I was freelancing when that started. And now another story. So, I, but I was coloring something. I was coloring one book or, or getting enough work for me to say, take a chance. You know, you're young. I wasn't married. and had no, no you know, fiscal responsibilities to anyone other than myself and um so what happened was i i hooked up cbs toys with a, a small company that did audio visual stuff they had started working with cbs toys to do software books and tapes for um uh, for this new toy that cbs toy was coming out with and um i met with both of these people and I said, uh, I could be the liaison between you guys and we could work together. You know, I know the toy industry and all. And uh, we started working together, the, the three of us. I was brought on and the, this group taught me audiovisual production. I always had a, I had a good sense of artwork and things and design and stuff like that. They taught me how to produce audio. CBS Toy had this toy called Talk and Play which was a four track, it was simple technology. It was a four track, um, it was like a, a console and a kid would press one of four different colored buttons to change the track on a cassette, which means at any given point, you could switch from 
Oscar talking to Big Bird talking to that, 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 you know, you get it. So when you create a story and we did, uh, we did the artwork for the books, you did a story of, let's say Oscar's talking with Big Bird, Oscar's in his garbage can, they're on Sesame Street and they're having some conversation. The, the tape would ask you like, um, how many garbage cans are there in the alleyway or something like that? Are there one? Are there two? Are the Chris, you know, the green button for one press button. So the kid would would you know, would press the appropriate buttons. And because of the way we, we did the recording, which was real simple, and these four tracks, Big Bird could respond, yes, two is the right answer. Or Oscar to say, no, nah, that wasn't the right answer. The right answer was six. We did 40 or 50 of these things. And I, I became an audio producer and a pretty decent one too, because I, I had a good ear for, you know, for voice and sound and music and everything. And um, CBS sold the toy to, I don't know who, but it ended up with Hasbro of all people. Hasbro bought Talk and Play. And um, that's what I was doing for six years, set from 83 to about 90, 89, 89 you know, or so. And I was coloring Marvel. So I was in the in my office on on the west side of town, uh, you know, working on a script. We hire writers to write these scripts. Oh, and and because of my in my background in toys, I was working with all the licensees that all the licensors that had sold licenses to CBS or Hasbro. So it was the Muppets, it was uh, Fraggle Rock, it was Disney, it was whatever. And we get these guys, the licensed voices, to come in because only one voice could do Big Bird, just one guy. One guy could do Oscar or whatever. We'd get him into recording studios and just record and record and record. And I'd edit the tapes together with an editor. We'd sweeten it with music and stuff. So I, I kind of developed a second career, you know, much thanks to, you know, this small group um, called Instant Miracles on the west side of town. But while I was I was working there, and most of my days were spent in a recording studio, and I loved it. Man, if I, that was, I, that, I, I loved that job as much as any job I ever had, just spending hours in a recording studio. Hour after hour, doing take after take after, you know, it, I just I loved it. But I get a call from Marvel, who's directly across town. I was on Eighth Avenue; they were on Park. I, hey, Neil, the latest issue of whatever came in. Could you, you know, all right, I'll be right over. So I, during, during lunch, I walk across town. I pick up my pages of you know the Transformers or whatever. It's so, oh great, I got a job for the weekend. So I you know put in many hours during the week doing audio production as well as art direction, because we were doing books and script development and stuff, because we had writers doing scripts, and color and Marvel comics. And I, man, I was happy as a, as a pig in mud. I just, I, I loved it. And again, I, I, was, I still wasn't married. I had a really lovely apartment in Queens, and I just, I, it was, I was playing music with the guys. So it was, you know, it was, it was really great, but it was, it was audio production during those years. Can you tell us maybe... And then... <laughs> I was going to say, can you tell us maybe about okay, the, yeah. the, the process of... Coloring uh, for for Marvel comic book back then in the like the okay. mid eighties. So so, what were you given? What tools did you use? And, and then I guess it was taken away to get marked up by some techies with all of the coding for printing. So, so how how did that all work? Um, you would get reduced size of the black and white artwork. Let's say Transformers, because I was doing Transformers at the time. I get reduced size. It was six by nine, so it was pretty much print size. So the original boards were eleven by seventeen. I think the art was done. They shrink it down sixty or sixty-five percent. So it was six six by nine was the artwork on on Xerox paper. You know, so it's just line line art on Xerox paper. If I was doing trans 
Well, let's not do Transformers because that was, let's say it was a Spider-Man story and he's fighting the, the lizard, okay? You know, I was doing, let's say, eight, issue 20. I'd ask, what happened in issue 19? Do you have the color reference for issue 19? Who was the guy in the suit? What was JJ wearing? What was this one? You know, because if they appeared again in a similar, in a same scene in the next issue, you'd want that continuity. So the editors would say, okay, I said, I don't need Spider-Man. I don't, you know, I, I know the main villains. I don't, you know, so, but tell me all the other stuff. What's what color was his desk? What color was his chair? In case there was continuity into, into the issue that I was coloring. And then um, you take the pages and go home and you color them. Everyone, at the time, uh, used Dr. Martin's water dyes. It was uh, Marie gave me my first set. Marie taught me how to color. That you know, so I you know, it, it just it didn't happen upon me. She you know she taught me and others how to color. And um, it was a small set. I think maybe there were thirty-two colors in it or so. Some colors you had to mix. To, you know, but because of the very 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 limited printing process, you really could only print maybe. I don't know, print well, maybe 25 or 30 colors. You were extremely limited. You couldn't print too dark. You couldn't print too light. Uh, certain browns and certain greens got really muddy and murky. So, you you know, you knew to avoid those. But um, you go home and you have a color chart. And at the time, again, real simple, primitive, that, that this was the, the scheme used for decades and decades. You had three values of each color. You had a 25%, a 50%, and a 100% of each of your primaries, your yellow, red, and, and blue. And using combinations of those, you, you got ultimately 64 colors, but as I said, you may, maybe 30 or 35 you choose to use in the, in the, in the context of you know, doing a, a job. So 25% color was denoted by the number two. So Y2 was 25% yellow, R2, 25%, but the th a three, Y3, B3, R3 was 50% of, of the full color. And the numeral, the letter itself, Y, R, or B was 100% of, of that, uh, of, of the color. So if I was doing flesh, flesh was a combination of yellow and red. And the flesh that Marvel used was 25% red, and 25% yellow, a blending of the of those two colors to create flesh. So the code for that would be Y2, R2, 25 yellow, 25 red. So when you see coloring, and they were just guides. So when you see coloring guides marked up Y2, R2, and there's a line going to a guy's face saying like from, from the outside the board, that's, that was Marvel's flesh, 25 yellow, 25. Spider-Man's blue wasn't just blue. It wasn't just 100% blue. It wasn't just B. Spider-Man's blue had a little red in it. It had 25% red. So the code for Spidey blue was BR2. So it, it was uh, as simple, as, you know, because you were dealing with so few colors, you know. <laughs> how, how, what was, how fast were you at a normal clip? How fast were you when there was a deadline problem? Deadlines, I could do a book in a night. The reason for that is that they paid double rate or rate and a half. So let's say, so when I first started coloring, I was getting maybe 15 bucks. You start at the lower end. 
you know, whatever, maybe 12, no, probably eight or $12 I was probably getting in 1970, whatever it was, 77. Yeah, 77, I probably started calling. They start you off, because we had so many reprints and that I was doing the production on, they'd start you off on reprints because you know, if you bought your reprint story, who's going who's gonna to really know? Uh, just so reprints had to be recolored. Many, many were. The Westons were. Some of the Hulk uh, it came out on the title of Marvel Superheroes. I think that was the Hulk reprint. This, this is because uh, you you didn't still have what assets in order to use the original colors? The original book. The original films? Comic book. The original co printed comic book. Okay. Okay. We would often go to a comic book shop, and if it was within reason, if it was a comic book shop was selling, let's say we were reprinting Spider-Man 110. If within reason, the local comic book shop had Spider-Man 110 for 6 or $7, we'd say, let's buy the book and cut it up and send it to the printer. As, as reference? As the coloring guides. Would you just, would, and you'd, you'd recode we it? We would do that. Y2, R2. Yeah. Yeah. If you did it once on a page. Okay. I did flesh on a guy's page in panel one. I don't have to do it the rest of the, of the, of the, of the, on that page. Okay. Sometimes I went overboard because, you know, if I was going for like a, a khaki or something like that, I wanted to make sure that they got the khaki. So even though the same guy was wearing the same overcoat in all the panels, I might note that khaki code three or four times rather than just once. Marie, Marie was just, she did it once and that was it. Some colors are so obviously like the Spidey red was 100% red, 100% yellow. So that was YR. Sometimes you didn't even bother doing that because the printers and the color separators were so accustomed to seeing that red. Whereas a red, a red just R, 100% R, was, was magenta. It wasn't a warm Spider-Man red. It was a cold red that Maybe Galactus has on him. If I'm, I'm, I'm just. Does he have red on him? Yeah, he's yeah, he's magenta and purple. Magenta. All right, so, all right, so you would be recoloring uh, a reprint if you didn't have a printed copy of that original comic book. Yes, as as reference. So you could do twenty two pages. When you say in a night, do you mean like after hours till midnight, or you mean pulling yeah. an all nighter? Pull pulling an all nighter, getting home from the office grabbing uh, lunch or din grabbing dinner and saying, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Okay. And, and stay for me that, and many other people. And they'd pay, they'd pay people. double if they needed it the next day. I think it was double, maybe rate and a half, <laughs> but I think double for overnighters. Okay. So if your rate was 15, uh, you know, you'd, you'd get 30. But as you, as you, you know, over the years, by the time I finished and I wasn't the highest paid because I was by no means, you know, at the top of the line of, you know, really great colors. If I was getting maybe $35, $35 a page and I was doing, you know, an overnighter, even if I was only getting rate and a half, it was 50 bucks a page. So that's over $1,000 for, for staying up all night. To me, that was like, eh, you know, it's worth it. You know, I'll sleep tomorrow. Okay. So before I ask the Transformers question, so um, you talked about one, you talked about two limitations. You only have 64 colors, but you can really only use fewer than a that chunk anyway. of those. so yeah as you're coloring what are you doing to contend with the fact that it's going to be reproduced small it's going to be reproduced um that that uh the separators might make a mistake that uh 
I mean, you've already answered you've already answered the the paper was crummy question, right? Can't use all the colors in your palette, but were how were you contending with the next step in the coloring, which is you're not the person who's actually doing the separations. You're not actually the engraver. How are you? I don't want to say idiot proofing, but how are you thinking ahead? Well, a lot of it came to the proper coding where you want to leave as little guesswork to the separator as possible. That was, you know, that's the way I looked at it. So indicate whether it's a Y2 or a Y3. Don't, don't let it go. Don't assume that they're going to know you want the 25% yellow because it's important in this case for it to be the 50% for what, you know, for whatever reason. So that's why I kind of went overboard with very carefully marking up um, what I would, you know, what I would do, what, you know, the colors I would, I would put down my, my, the basic way that I did it. And I guess everyone had their own way, uh, you know, of, of approaching a, an entire book is I go in and I put in all the colors I knew wasn't, weren't going to change. So I'd get red on my brush. All right. And I do all the spidey throughout the book. And I go back and do all spidey blue, unless I saw a panel where I wanted to do some lighting effect, you know, make the red uh, an orange or the blue a, a dark gray, something. So I, so that's what, so I would leave those panels like, I'll, I'll handle that special effect, that lighting effect or whatever, when I get to it. And then you start going it. So, and you try to do everything for me, you did everything. You did all the superhero costumes. You did, you know, if you, if you wanted to put JJ in a dark gray suit, just do, once you have that gray on your brush, just keep on dipping it and do the entire book. So you'd spread out your pages you know, on a large flat desk. I did it on a flat desk. And take care of all the, the things that um, that don't that aren't gonna require me to think. This is the mechanical stuff, you know, just blasting through this, getting that color in in as many places that I know it's not gonna change. And then you start going in and I my thing was start at the beginning of the book, start on the splash page and it's and you know, work towards you know, towards the end. You know, and it was just it was constantly making decisions. George Russo, you must be familiar with the name George Russo. Yeah, he no? colored some GI Joe. He, yeah, he did color Joe. He, at the end of his career, he was uh, he was a staff colorist. He did staff coloring and colored a lot of freelance. But he also inked one of the first two or three FFs. George went way back. He did work for EC Comics, probably national. He was a very accomplished guy, very understated guy, but. He was one of those guys who was great to have in the office. And, and, you know, and that was another thing about the office and not to, you know, take steps backwards, but you had all these people together who taught you about the industry, who, who provided you with a history of, of where you are, where you are. How did you get here? Well, you got here because Jack Kirby was doing this and so-and-so was doing that. You know, they helped put a, a, a the right spin on the history of, of comics in general, Marvel in particular. That, that was, and you, so you had this great blend of older folks, 50, 50s, 40s, 50s, and younger kids like myself, keep, you know, people in their 20s, and the old guys are passing down all this, this wonderful, this heritage, this legacy of, you know, you know the industry. Uh, th and that, that to me was just like, oh, so that's why it's happening. And that's why, that's what his contribution was. That's what her contribution was. Incredibly rich experience. 
when you were coloring G.I. Joe, mm. what reference did you have? Because this was now a toy line. This wasn't Spider-Man where you just know what colors Spider-Man is. Right. Joe, I'm pretty sure that by the time, and this was, it was unlike Transformers, by the time a, a character, Larry was using a character in a book, I, that I had print reference for the color of that character. Like I had a, a, a character sheet, something of that character for that character. It, it might have even been, you know, maybe it would have been packaging art. I, I, I don't remember exactly. But I wasn't just trying to come up with things whole cloth. I knew that this guy had a, you know, dark green, you know, beret or, you know, whatever. I had reference for that. That was totally unlike Transformers. Transformers was a bitch. <laughs> It was a it was man. It was a nightmare. And my my son, he's now thirty four. He um, a few years ago, he says, "Man, you should see what these guys say about your coloring online." I said, well, "I said what?" He said, "Man, these, these people on these on these blogs and stuff—they just savage your coloring. They rip you. They rip." I said, "Who are these people?" He said, "They seem to be a lot of British guys, <laughs> Mark, who just like hate your coloring." I said, what are you talking about? I did this, how many years, how many decades ago? He says, no. He says, hey. and he showed me one, one blog. Some guy wrote, Nell Yamta should be dragged into the street and beaten. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize it was such passion about, about this, but it wasn't my fault. I it was not my fault. What the Brits had was a comparator because we had British-originated work being drawn and coloured in a different style and comparing it that Yes, that and it was done well. It was done well. I, it, that was coming from, I guess, Marvel UK, right? Yeah. Was yeah, doing yeah. those. Yeah, I, 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 would like to, yeah. I would like to speak for a moment from both sides here. The, the grumpy <laughs> Transformers fan and the, the Nell Yamtov booster. I was aware when I was reading comics from the 80s in the late 80s and early 90s that printing was limited, that if on an action figure or a book cover painting or on TV, every little part of a character might be a different color and the correct color. For some reason, when I opened up an issue of G.I. Joe, sometimes there's a crowd in the background and it's all just red or it's all, yeah, just, it's all just blue, right? It's all a knockout. And right. and I didn't like that. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out why, because paper is so crappy and you are aware that the separator with an X-Acto is going to be cutting out ruby lith film in the exact shape of, of every of every bit of color or sort of overlapping. It's like, well, I've got a 25% blue here and it touches a 50% blue here. So the, the plate for the blue is going to be able to have some blue and some more blue and they're going to be touching, right? So, so wh where were the where were the separators? Where were people actually cutting ruby lith for Marvel? Well, that, that's the thing. It, as far as I know, it wasn't ruby lith that they were cutting. Okay. That, that is one way to separate. Okay. They were doing a similar process with a, a special kind of paint. I don't know if it was I, it was an orange, dark orange colored, like a brownish colored paint hmm. that accomplished the same things as ruby lith did. But they were instead of cutting ruby lith, they were painting in those areas this thing that that prevented light from going through when it was being you know shot or something. 
they were painting onto what surface? As far as I understand, there, there were nine sheets. There were actually probably 10 sheets of acetate, clear plastic. Let's say your, your, your top sheet was the black line. So this is clear acetate was, was your black plate. You then had, for each value, three yellow plates, three red plates, and three blue plates. Okay. 25, 50, 100. Exactly. Except. Plus the black plate. Okay. And, and so, so, so that, would, that would give you the, the whole range of colors that was accessible to you. So instead of putting, let's say they wanted to do, and again, I don't know the technical thing of how all this was photographed, but if you were doing Y2, R2, the flesh with ruby lith, on the on the twenty five percent yellow plate and red plate, you would cut out ruby lith just in the area of the guy's face. That's my understanding. With using this paint, this it's kind of a, a thick paint. You do the same thing on those two different acetates with a brush and and this paint. It would achieve the same thing, but it was just a, it was just a different medium that they were using. And from what I understand. That was the medium that had been used for, for you know, eons. The, cult, the separations were done in Connecticut at a place called Chemical, Chemical Color. Okay. All right. They did all the separations for all the comic book companies. All right. And for, for viewers and listeners, when we say separations, right? So Nell colors with a palette of 64 colors and the separator making separations is, is separating those 64 colors into the three base colors of yellow, magenta, and blue, and then also the black. Okay, so cool. all right, so back to my sort of defending these two sides. So so I came into G.I. Joe and Transformers comics, and I was used to how detailed the color schemes were from the toys and the TV shows, and they were not as detailed in the comics, even though in some cases the artwork, the line art was more detailed, mm. and the color wasn't as vivid because it wasn't animation cell paint photographed, and then broadcast on a cathode ray tube television, right? It was ink on horrible newsprint. And I love newsprint now. Me too. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, many of the Transformers um, from issue one, the colors were were not a match for the toys, right? So, you know, character has like a yellow shoulder and a black elbow and like a black forearm and Maybe in the comic, it's like all of it's black, right? Some of it gets simplified or some of it maybe the first time is a mistake or the first time maybe is a reference from some artwork provided by Hasbro that's not finalized. And and then some of that stuff gets carried forward for many, many issues or the entire uh, series. So I think some of this is fans we're seeing in the Transformers comics color that didn't match their expectations from the toys and the cartoon. I think there were some mistakes because just there are so many characters. And, you know, one of the points that I make when people draw Transformers comics is like, you can draw Spider-Man from any angle. You can draw like a close-up of Spider-Man's shoulder. And we all know what that is. But storytelling in a Transformers comic might have to be a little bit more restrained because if you just show a close-up of a Transformer's shoulder or a Transformer's shoulder holding like an interesting weapon in a room full of other Transformers, unless it's like Optimus Prime's shoulder, which is totally iconic, right. 
most of the audience isn't going to know what they're looking at. Well, I'm looking at a cube, but I don't know whose cube and where. It might be someone's abdomen. It might be someone's foot, right? And so uh, I think anyone who colored the Transformers comic was going to have like one strike against them when it came time for fans to express opinions, right? And then years later, you've got the internet where you can express opinions <laughs> anonymously or sort of fake bravely. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that because it was a licensed book, you had a lot of deadlines. You had a lot of really tight turnarounds on Transformers. And yeah. even more so than G.I. Joe, the Transformers series introduced so many characters who had... You know, like if you if you squint and you look at a range of G.I. Joe characters, sometimes a bunch of them are all kind of the same car- uh, colors. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen as much with Transformers. And so well, there's just a lot of stuff. There's just a lot of stuff. And you've only got 64, but maybe really only, you know, I think Shooter said to us it was more like 48. But 40, your, your yeah. number, right? 30 yeah. or 20. Um, you've got really limited palette to work with. And so... Uh, on behalf of on, be, on behalf of <laughs> decent Transformers fans, right? I'm sorry. I will say, I will say, in the final um, in the final like two years of the series. Uh, so Bob Budiansky has left writing Transformers. Yeah, yeah. Simon Furman takes over. Uh, Jose Delbo stops drawing the book. Jeff Senior draws a few issues. Andrew Wildman draws right. the final year. And man, Nell. That final year, mm, mwah, chef's kiss, including the paper and the color. Uh, I don't know if you had a little more time or Andrew Wildman's artwork was just a little bit more open or a little bit more animated. Uh, paper gets better somewhere in there around, I don't know, issue 50 or 60. But uh, the, that final year of Transformers is some of my favorite comic books ever. So It was beautiful stuff. Uh, so Thank you. Thanks for having my back. I really appreciate it. Tim. I did because and and I complained a lot about color in comics. <laughs> Let me tell you, yes. uh, uh, Mark. Mark's just nodding because, uh, you know, I, I have. Um, Tim cares about colors in comics. I, I had uh, a, I had and, a thought about as well about another component of the um of the of the UK uh, Transformers, which which might make some of those angry UK Transformers readers' <laughs> opinions more, more understandable. So, so I mentioned there's the comparison, but, but there's also the fact that the, the, the weekly UK Transformers was basically A4-sized, so it was blown up at a much bigger size than the mm-hmm. uh, American, you know, standard American one. It's like closer to what you'd call, I guess, is it letter paper-sized or whatever. And then the the other component is that it's on much nicer paper stock as well. It's on glossy paper, so you can get away with yes. doing more, which is what um, the the um, the UK commissioned work would be. You know, they could get away with full painted art, for example. Um, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm just contextualizing. I'm not an angry Transformers fan, but <laughs> I I think I think that for the for the small vocal percentage of grumpy Transformers fans online who have insulted your professional work on Transformers now, I think those people should compare not only the, 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 the sort of lesser issues of Transformers to the superior issues of Transformers, but I think they should also transform, uh, 
com- compare an average issue of Transformers to I didn't like Shogun Warriors, right? There's sort of no, there's almost no analog for Transformers at Marvel because there were a couple, you know, like Rom, there are a couple toy books, there are a couple robot books, but mm. um, I mean, I think Headmasters issue number one, right, which is the spinoff that shows up uh, around when issue, I forget, 45 of the monthly Transformers is going, mm-hmm. right? Headmasters, the heads become a little robot. Target Masters, the guns right. become a little robot. Later on, Power Masters, the engines become a little robot. I think Headmasters number one introduces like 45 new characters because the Transformers go to another planet and they meet a whole bunch of new Transformers and all of them are two characters because this guy's head becomes a guy and this guy's gun becomes right. a guy and and they've all got names. And it's sort of like anyone who says that, you know, the writing on the Transformers comic uh, wasn't very good. And I think there you can have the discussion, you can have the argument about the quality of one Marvel licensed book like Transformers and another one like G.I. Joe or Star Wars mm-hmm. or, or ROM. Uh, but Bob Budiansky had to introduce a bunch yeah. of characters and you mm-hmm. had to color them all. And <laughs> it just gets really crowded. It, it did. I, the way I I stumbled on that on getting that gig, I was doing the um, that audio production, and after after work there, I'd wander across the Marvel because invariably some guys were going to go out for drinks or for dinner. So you know six thirty, six six thirty, you go into the office, and there's still everyone's still at that. Many people are still at their desks and stuff. And I was also going over to wander around to hey, anybody need a hand with some coloring over the weekend or something like that? I was looking for you know. Pick up a few bucks. And I go in there one day, and it's late. It's six at six six thirty, and I'm pretty sure it was a fellow by the name of Michael Higgins. I don't know if that rings. Mike was a, a letterer. He was in the bullpen. Assistant editor on Transformers. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. I don't think he was ever editor on. Maybe assistant. I, I think he's assistant by the by the end of the second year. So he may have been. I don't have my Transformers issues in front of me. Yeah, but. I don't, I, but I think it was, I, I think it was Mike. Maybe it was Bob. I don't remember who it was. And I was walking down, down the hallway and this person looked really frantic and, hey, what, you know, what's the matter? We got this book and Shooter wants all these freaking corrections on it and this and that. And it shows me this, a spread. It's, it's coloring size. And it's, it may have been pages two and three or something. It was a spread of, and it was the first issue. And all these little robots, many robots are. I forgot what they were crowded around. Was, what? What? Is, I didn't know what. I didn't know what. Then what? That's this thing called Transformers, and it's a toy, and they want these last-minute corrections. And the book has got to go to the printer, but Shooter wants it rewritten, or he wants it redrawn. Shooter wanted something done on it, and uh, we're running out of time. He says, "Do you think you could color it?" I, I you know, it was a job. You know, it's like how big? How big? You finish. They didn't tell me it was a series. I, it was a book. You know, maybe Nell helps us out this time. And then they get, you know, they put a regular colorist on it. But Nell happens to be. That's where you got a lot of work in Marvel, especially for colorists and letterers. If you were in the office when someone was in a bind, come in here. I've got 15 <laughs> pages. Could you do these tonight? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, a lot of stuff got done that way, you know, because books were so frequently late. You know, you grab whoever, you know, you have two arms. Come here. I'll give you a brush. Some colors, go have some fun, and that's the way I got Transformers. What I believe I got, 
and it was the first and only time in seven years. I'm not, I'm not snowing you. They gave me some character sketches with colors knocked in in marker or pencil of a bunch of a bunch of maybe these guys who were on this in this first issue. That was the first and only time I got any legitimate reference on Transformers. What I would normally get once Transformers. So we, I stumbled through that first year. I don't know how. Maybe they were giving me other colors, uh, other sketches. But every year after that, I got a toy catalog. These are the toys for this year. And how does Hasbro shoot their toy catalog? With all these dramatic lighting effects. Purples, reds, greens. And, you know, they're all arranged, you know, the, the 40 toys... <laughs> This big in a catalog, in a nice, nicely printed, glossy colored catalog, on a big spread, like this, all this, all, all these dramatic coloring effects, like these theater effects. Not was it was it blue? Was it was it teal? Was it uh, it was it green? I knew nothing. The only time I got anything better than that was when they were doing the uh, the Dinobots. I think Bo Bobby Chase, I think, was the editor on the book. I don't, I don't remember who. They gave me a set of the toys. <laughs> I had four toys. I said, all right, yellow, the gray. I could remember take the gray and the, the spider red. No problem. I gave the toys to my, to my kids. That, the, those were the – and I'm not defending any bad coloring or excessive use of knockouts or anything like that. I had nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing. And then to top it off. You know, you you mentioned Tim, the color, the the paper got better. They started using this was the explanation. We're starting to use plastic plates instead of the metal plates that we were using. I don't know. This was maybe halfway through the run, and you'll notice this across the entire Marvel line. The colors printed so brilliantly and so vividly, it was it was blinding. This is this is when so, the yellows get. The yellows are like this, and the reds are screaming at yeah. you. It's just, you know, I'm used to, like you guys, newsprint. Everything gets flattened out, doled out, you know, matted. Now now the colors, so my yellow that I would have used on whatever, on Bumblebee, for example. See how I remember this now? Was, wasn't this pleasant, unoffensive yellow. It was this yellow. It was this yellow. So whenever he would appear on a page, it was this, this so I said, I can't keep doing this. I've got to, from my point of view, I've got to knock everything back. So my 100%, maybe I'll try for a couple of issues, a 50% yellow for Bumblebee, and I'll avoid yellows altogether. Or I'll use a 50% red and a 50% yellow for my full-blown 100% yellow, 100% spidey red to try to pull everything down where it wasn't just so offensive. And this went on for, it was, it was, so frustrating, so frustrating. But the last few, the, when when Andrew, I, who I adore, he's a wonderful guy, and um, Mr. Baskerville Steve, was doing the, the thing on Stephen Baskerville. Steve, that's the, I met those guys going over to, to conventions in London for a couple of years. That's why I first met him. And, and all the guys at Marvel UK, we, we became friends. Um, that stuff was, and and the writing was just, man, it was really good. I really enjoyed working on those. But the problem with the characters never changed. It was, it was always, it was always the same. So in my, in my defense, I must say, I Lord, I try. I, if you have a second, I have a few pages right yes, here. Yes, please. 
Yeah, hold on. Pardon my my absence. Uh, I should have had my uh, Mark. I should have had my <laughs> Titan hardcovers with me. They're down the hall in my bedroom because the the two the two that reprint the final year uh, and they use the original color films but on glossy paper. Those those Titan reprints from what was it two thousand two. You know, just like the artists would get them. Oh yeah, Pen- pencilers get two thirds. The originals inkers get one third. Yeah, that was yeah that was a breakdown I remember. And then they all if and they alternated covers if they were that was my understanding if they were on the series together and did covers together they alternate covers. So did you get all your color pages back? Yeah, and I've got three left of the thousands of pages that were returned to me. Wow, you I threw I threw them all out. Oh, you haven't been selling them. I never sold. Oh. Them. I never. I threw them out before I realized oh. when, when comic book with colorists were telling me, "Hey, I sold a, a book of." Blah, 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 blah. I said, "You're selling people are buying that stuff. They're paying for that." Yeah, it's I. So dis- uh, you mentioned George Rousseau's, and I have yeah. a I have a George Rousseau's color guide from GI Joe number twenty six. Oh, and it's nice! One of the it's one of the two and a half issues that Larry Hama penciled. So the issue. So oh the, gosh, page, that's cool. Page looks really great. Uh, yeah, George. George. He knew. George gave me. You know, I. I he, it was he, for a very short time, he was made head of coloring. There was switches in the office going on. I think I was on. I was, I was on staff at the time. Marie was head of the coloring. She was art director. And then George became head of coloring. And he t- he took me aside one day. He says, "This. He says, it's not. You know, it's not rocket science. It's not difficult." He says, "Joe, you got to do is remember two things." I said, "I was just learning." And I said, "What?" He said, "Light against dark, warm against cool." He said, that, "That's all." You know. I, I well, anyway, you mentioned Jeff Senior, and I think these are Jeff Senior pages. And as I said, of all the thousands of pages that were returned to me, I probably got back almost everything I ever called it. I have only three left, and they're from a Transformers book, and I, it, it's it's Jeff Senior stuff. I can't tell what issue it is because it's clipped off the Xerox, but. But anyway. Oh, that's 75. Oh, it's 75? Uh, <laughs> is it? I think I think that's 75. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, Unicron. Yeah. Uh, I might own that page, actually. The original? I own I own about 10 pages from 75. Well, if you if if you own the if you own it, let me know, I'll send you this. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Go from the same issue. Oh wow. I love coloring this stuff. Um Jose's stuff was a lot of guys were tough to color because it was just such detail and stuff. But this was the first time I, I I'd ever seen Jeff's work. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, uh, listeners. This yeah. is this is these are three pages from Transformers number seventy five when Unicron has attacked Cybertron and the Autobots and Decepticons are um, are uh, fighting back. I'm going to grab my Itoya folder. One second. <laughs> See, Mark, you can see the the codes I've written. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see in that that light, right. you can see them catch them. Yeah, right. Over the years, people have tracked me down on on Facebook and fans, Transformer fans, and you know we like your work. The you know the two or three who like my work, you know we like your work coloring and <laughs> I say give me a address, I'll send you a page. But this was the only book that I ever kept, and these are the last. Uh, the last three. And and Jeff, when I was editing Iron Man, I asked because I just loved his work. And he was such a nice guy. I guess I he did a, an Iron Man story or two for me, or a war machine. I forgot which maybe war machine. 
he did an issue or two for me. Such a nice guy. One of the things, I had no contact with um, any of the, the British artists until I started going to the to UCAC. Uh -huh. It was a convention yeah. that, yeah. UK so Comic the, Art I think, Convention, yeah. I, I used to go back yes, in my youth. <laughs> so when would you when would you have been going? I was, it was like, I was towards the, the, the back end of it when it was just the last few. So it was like 95-ish. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I went in 91, 90, 91. Yeah, the first year I got back to Marvel, 90, I went 91, 92. I had been to England a number of times. And just, I just I just love the country. But that's where I met those. Is that the original? Yeah, that's, 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 one, of the, that's one of the pages you just held up. Yeah, email me your address and I'll send oh, you a call. Oh, cool. Wow, thanks. Um, yeah, and so I'm, I met a bunch of the, the UK creators and um, Dan Abnett, Lanning, you know, all those guys. Yeah, and so when I had a chance to use them, because um, when I went back to Marvel in 90, I went in as a, an, an editor for Epic, which was the creator-owned branch. And we had a lot of projects going with, with British creators. So I met a lot of those guys there. And then, you know, I would see him in England or whatever. But um, Stephen did the last issue of, I think it was Forceworks that I was editing. And yeah, it was the last, I think it was issue 25 when the book ended. And I think he says it's, it's the best piece of work that he's ever done. He did a beautiful job. And again, he was in New York. I needed an artist. And he was in New York visiting, uh, maybe sightseeing and you know, trying to put together some work. He was up at the Marvel offices. We had met in the past and you know knew each other. I said, can you have time to do an issue? And he said, yeah. I said, okay, it's yours. Here's the plot. That's the way stuff was picked up. You know, it's just, you know. Are you, uh, yeah. now are you sitting on an unpublished Forceworks cover by any chance? Because um, the, the final issue of uh, Forceworks, which, which for our listeners is uh, what Avengers West Coast turned into when it got awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, the final issue of Forceworks has a uh, cover by uh, Wildman and Baskerville. And uh -huh. the second to last cover is by Mark Bright. And wow. I feel like one of those two issues has a blurb for an upcoming issue in the letters page, which shows a small drawing. And then that issue didn't get published. Wow. I mean, I also know that's a general Marvel phenomenon where they were inventory issues that were ready to go that never got published because the series was canceled right. before they needed another fill in, or there was some material that was ready to go. And then the series ended. I guess I've answered my own question. You probably are not sitting on any force unpublished force. Not, yeah. Um, no, all right, so that thing became such a problem that that book. Not not to not to digress, but finding artists was just like every month. It just seemed I was looking for someone new. The, the artist who who I started it with lasted only four issues. He kind of abandoned me, and I was just left scrambling. Although I love the writing, whoever I got did a good job. I did not know I had Mark do a Mark Wright do an issue. I, I had no recollection uh, of that cover. at all. A cover, a cover, second to last uh, issue, issue twenty one. It's in it's in my Mark Bright box down the down the hallway. All right, so um, you just mentioned when you came back to Marvel mm -hmm. and you were working on Epic. Did you work uh, with Mike Vosberg on his uh, on his Epic series? No. Okay. There's, there's another GI Joe alum. Right. Mm -hmm. 
so uh, tell us what brought you back to Marvel and how how things were different. Oh, oh good. That's a, that's a darn good question. So things were rolling along really well with the, the audio production and these talking toys. The, the technology behind it was you take a, you have an audio cassette, you know, with whatever stories being, you know, was narrated. And there was a, I think it was an inaudible t- tone went beep and it, it triggered the, the, the character's mouth. So there was something between p- putting the cassette in the, in the character's rear end or whatever, whatever the, I, I think Teddy Ruxkin's cassettes went into his stomach. Yeah, I think Big Bird was something. It was <laughs> elsewhere. But. So, but it, so it would activate this mouth. Well, they were real hot. There was a talking Big Bird that, who I was doing the, all this audio stuff for, and uh, the the, doll, the dolls were so cute and lovable that the kids loved to play with them. You know, mangle their faces and stuff. And after a while, the returns on broken toys was becoming extremely high. And these were these in those days the toys were 65, 75 bucks. It was a lot of money for, you know, for a kid's toy that did nothing other than this. I mean, you really couldn't play with it because it was kind of delicate. But the kids were smashing up the inadvertently. They were breaking the mechanisms. So the company started getting all these returns. So the, you know, the manufacturer saying, you know, it's hard to become worth it. Maybe we just, you know, we shot our shot and that's, you know, let's move on to something else. This was a fad. We'll move on. But when they did that, that it, it affected my audio production business drastically. My son had just been born, you know, he was born in July of 89. This was going in the toilet, you know, around that time. So I found myself um, with very little work <laughs> except the Marvel coloring that I was still doing. A book or two, whatever. So it, so things were getting you know desperate. My wife took off work, and uh, we 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 had to we moved. I had to sell a co-op because yeah, we we moved. The rent was extraordinary. We were renting a house in Forest Hills and Queens. So there was all this personal stuff going on. Where the, but the bottom line was you, you need you need some money, buddy. Because you know we agreed my wife would take a couple of years and you know stay home with you know with Jess and stuff. So um, but I was continually going into the city from Queens. Um, the Marvel, because that, that it was the only place I really knew how to, you know, where I could get work. And I was getting like a story in Marvel Presents or, so, you know, something. So, you know, just grateful for every, you know, for everything I, I could get. Because like I said, I they were top of the line colors, like you know, Christy Shield and others, of you know, that, you know, rank. They, you know, they were, they were artists. I was a colorist, you know. I, I had no illusions of me being as good as them. They were, you know. They were extremely, extremely good at what they did. And um, uh, so I, I would continually go into, into the office looking for work, you know, to the point where it's probably becoming a real big pain in the ass. But, you know, everyone everyone knew Nell, and Nell come in, and sit down and talk. And I, I went up to the office one day, and I it was a coffee shop on the corner, and, uh, and I was really getting stressed out, you know, with the money thing. And uh, I ran into Danny Fingeroth, who was, you may know, Danny... He wrote a book about Stan Lee's, the editor of Marvel. He wrote comics and the whole thing. And, uh, and a real sweet guy. And I knew him for many, many years because he used to work in the British department in the 70s, as did Bob Budiansky. And uh, so it's talking outside this coffee shop. And you know what you know what you do. Danny's a sweet guy. And so I, I told him, I said, look, I got to be honest with you. You know, you're an old friend. I said, I, I really got to gotta find something, man, because, you know, things are getting kind of tight. And I'm getting really stressed out. And he said, uh, 
there's going to be some changes at Marvel. So, and he left it at that. And I said, well, thanks. So, several weeks pass by, and I get a call, and I'm out in Queens, and uh, it's Tom DeFalco. He said, no, it's, it's Tom. I said, yeah. How you doing, Tom? How's everything? He's got some big changes going on here at Marvel. And then dead silence. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I... <laughs> You're interested in coming back. I said, you know, do, you know, do what? He says, so-and-so is leaving. We're looking for an editor and da-da-da. I said, Tom, look, you know, I've never edited, you know. He says, no, come up for an interview. So I interviewed with him and Carl Potts and Bob Budiansky. And I was showing him samples of all this toy stuff that I had done, which had nothing to do with, you know, the comics. They knew what I had, you know, that was coloring and all. And uh, they hired me on the spot. They said, you want the job, it's yours. The medical plant, medical plant. I'm in. You can you can pay me in bananas, but I'll I'll be back. And uh, so they took me back, and it was epic. It was the creator-owned stuff solely. It was just epic projects. And Tom told me, he says some of these things are just you know these guys aren't delivering the work, and we've paid them for it. We hope you can you know do something about that. So I said sure. So you know I, I had an office. They gave me an assistant, and. Uh, you know, we got to work, you know, getting familiar with, you know, these, these projects, some really good ones, some really good artists. But for the, these guys, just a couple of guys were just not delivering their work on time. And they, we had already given thousands of dollars in advances against royalties and stuff. And I just remember having some heated discussions with a, a couple of guys, like, you know, turning the work and, and what have you. And there was one, I was working on one book with Alan Grant, who I, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, real talented writer. He became the go-between between me and this artist who wasn't delivering the work. And Alan was just, you know, he was telling me, no, oh, the fellow has, you know, some personal issues and stuff. And I just, I got really heated. You know, I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty mild. You know, I've only lost it a couple of times in business and stuff. I said, but that, doesn't he realize that he's stolen money from, from the company? I, I understand he has, you know, personal issues or something. Let him return the money. I'll send them back whatever art he's given us, the few pages the hundreds that he owes us, and and I'll give him back, you know, let him give me back my money. We'll call it, you know, we're done. It's you know, it didn't work out. So there were those kind of issues, but in in the course of it, I also met a whole cadre of guys like Dan, like the Lannings, and um, a couple of guys who did. Oh, it was a takeoff on the Blues Brothers. You remember that, Mark? It was a comedy thing, satire on the Blues Brothers. Yeah, Sleaze Brothers. The Sleeve Brothers, yeah. To, uh, Car 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 John Carnell? Does that ring a bell? John Carnell is the was, writer. I mean, oh, maybe the writer. I thought that was, yeah, like uh, Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning. I think. Lanning drew it, I think. Lanning drew it. Abnett didn't have anything to okay. do with that. But anyway, I, I met a whole bunch of... of uh, Drawn by Andy Lanning. Lanning did it, yeah. And... Uh, and so that was my introduction. And then I would, you know, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, I was in England meeting these guys face to face. And they would just, and from there on in, and the, the reason, Tim, could, you're really astute about those last issues of, of Transformers. You're really spot on with that because you said, well, maybe you had more time. That was exactly the case because those guys were delivering the books, the, the Brits from that point on in my they were the only guys I could rely on. to. If they said, you're going to have the book on Friday, I had the book on Friday, bar none. Other than those first few epic experiences, 
that's why the book looks, you know, that's a reason why it may look good to you because it was always on time. And every time I lettered, I colored those books, the lettering was on the boards. They weren't pasted up. And you guys know what that, what that's all about, right? Lateness, you know, the letter, letters, the book and the artwork hasn't even done yet. The pencils are, but the inks aren't done. And if I'm, if I'm correct, all that Rick Parker lettering on those last issues was on the board. That was another thing about coloring um, the check. I, I'm pretty sure about that. I, I could be wrong. It wasn't. It, they were paste ups on on the Jeff Senior work. Yeah, I'd always assumed that 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 the final year was all paste up because it was penciled and inked in Britain, and it wouldn't make oh, sense yeah, to ship mean, it to New York to get lettered yeah. and then ship it back to Britain to get inked. You're right. Because I also you're I have right, a Wildman right. page here. Wildman pages over there. Um, yeah, but, you're, you're perfectly right. Um, are you saying it, um, is coloring is coloring it harder or take longer or you start later if the lettering is on an acetate overlay because someone has to in making the photocopy for you to color they have to like do whiteout or something to well, combine the happens. lettering with the art. If if there's no lettering on the copy that I get to color, see, because they had enough time, those although you're right. They wouldn't have sent it sent it back for inking, but they had the time in the schedule to paste up Rick's lettering ah. on an ink page. So I, that's what I on, got to on color. the actual boards, not on a on a yes. separate over acetate overlay. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So by the time I got the coloring, so and that was that was the responsibility of, of the the artists and the editor, Rob Tokar. Forget Rob's name. Rob Tokar. Tokar, um, another really nice guy. Those guys were on schedule all the time. So whenever I got the coloring, not only did I have a little bit, not only was the lettering on the board. See, because if the lettering isn't on the board, I don't know what's going on. If the lettering isn't on my copy of, of the coloring, which was very frequent, I didn't know what's going on. So I had to, you'd have to ask the editor, can I have the plot? Because the book could, you know, could be, it, it was, could have been in the process of actually being scripted, but at least there was a plot. Can you tell me if this is day or night? You know, see what I mean? Can you tell me who this character yeah, is? Yeah, on sometimes on original artwork, the artist will write a note. You know, it's like color colon or colorist. Uh, yeah. Sub in inside submarine, all red, or <laughs> uh, you know, like nighttime. Um, but yes, if you are, if you don't, if you don't have the lettering or you don't have the plot, you're guessing, and if you guess wrong, someone may make you do it again, or the coloring just may not be as good as it could be. Or right. there's an error, and then the readers don't like it. Yeah. Well, you don't get a call back for another job. You blew the last one. I'm sorry. We're gonna, go, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So, mm -hmm. uh, so my my sense of the sort of second, like to me, Epic had two waves at Marvel. There's the early years with Archie Goodwin and Epic Illustrated, and that sort of culminates in the American publication of Akira. Yep. Which which then pauses and finishes up later when uh, Otomo's done with the movie, and then there's what I think of as this second wave of epic, which is uh, like the Howard Shaken book, is it Midnight Midnight something? Yeah, that, that was mine. I and the that. Ron Lim book, Dragon Lines, and the um, I, I think uh, I think Mike Fosberg's Offcasts was in the second wave, but I'm not sure. But there was this second wave of yeah. Uh, and I thought it was around 1990. And I remember that yeah. second wave of Epic not lasting that long. Was it 
was it two mm. years? No, it, it lasted until 95, I believe. Okay, but was it, it sort of stretched out? Does it fit? It was spread out, yeah. It was run by Carl Potts. Okay. Carl Potts, that was his department. But um, you were an editor yeah. in that department? Yes. And by the time, well, his, for me personally, I then got, I got out of Epic because the guy who was editing Iron Man and Associated Books was leaving. So he said, look, Mel's doing a decent job with, let's get him into the superhero thing. Because not to say that one editor was more valuable than another, but maybe that's what the perception was. You know, do the superhero books. Let, let the creative stuff. Because the creative stuff was, was always was fraught with issues of, of exactly what I was saying. People not delivering work. And then you being stuck, powerless, impotent to do anything about it. But superhero books, the guy didn't deliver his book. He was gone. And I had someone, you know, that evening, you know, as a replacement. So I got into, I, it was Iron Man and Avengers West Coast, a couple of other titles. And someone else must have taken the the um, the epic stuff. However, within a couple of years, Marvel editors started getting epic projects to do. The superhero editors started getting, I remember I, I took a ton of them. Danny Fingeroth had something called Charlie and Frock Fly Trap. But I did... I did many of them. Um, I did the Midnight Men. I did a, ser a series with um, uh, with Phil Gascoigne. Phil Gascoigne it was a dread. It was called Dreadlands. I did something called Mutatis. I was I was constantly working with you know a lot of the British guys, and then it just petered out. I think by '96, I don't I don't even I don't even think it existed anymore. By the time I while well, you were an editor both at Epic and for the Iron Man books, Marvel was still in this phase because this this didn't end at marvel until 2000 or 2001 that editors mm -hmm. were expected or encouraged or allowed to write freelance scripts for marvel comics for other writers right so larry was editing conan larry was writing gi joe right. oh bob harris was uh, editing x-men writing avengers i forget the avengers. timeline there mm -hmm. so yeah. Um, you mentioned before, like maybe a little thing like Marvel Comics Presents. Were you, uh, were you also writing any? Did you want to? Were you encouraged yeah. to? I did. Um, I started writing. I don't know what my first assignment was, but I, I started writing the uh, the Junior Spider Man books that were based on the animation. So Spider Man Adventures. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then when that series got canceled, it was Adventures of Spider Man. I think there was. It, it, it was two different series under two different two different names. But I was also doing work for um, Marvel Presents. I wrote a number of four part series for them. One with one, uh, I was in fact I was using characters that were under my editorial umbrella, like Spider Woman and Hawkeye. I wrote some stories for Marvel Comics Presents. I scripted a Namor annual, I think. Yeah, I did a number of. Write a, a bunch of writing. So your your experience at Marvel is uh, wide ranged. You were in production. Mm. You did creative stuff. You did editorial, uh, and then coloring is sort of half uh, creative and half production, right? Because some right. of it is just plugging in colors. Do you feel like your writing at Marvel was getting to a certain uh, level? Is there a great Marvel story that you never got to tell? 
Uh, was it just like one more interesting thing to do and it was a good paycheck? How do you, how do you think of your yeah. writing at Marvel? I think it, it was, it was another experience that I had. I never fancied myself a terrific fiction writer. You know, I mentioned my interest in fiction was, wasn't that high. I never considered myself a, a very, very, see the, the, the movie adaptation, the animation adaptations, the, the weekly animation was perfect for me because it, it helped me refine my writing skills, you know, especially, you know, script, you know, dialogue and, and narration. The story was there, but I was free to present it in any way I wanted, you know, in, in, in Nell's, in Nell's language. So that helped me develop a voice, you know, if I would have one, but I kind of was looking, and this was very late in my Marvel career, um, as had always been my, from the, you know, from the get go, to, to gather experiences that I found interesting and fulfilling and, and challenging. So I saw my writing as something like that. Someone's given me an opportunity to do that. I, I can turn it down and say, no, I don't fancy myself a writer. Well, you can try to see if you can. Um, I, I, I don't fool myself. I know what, you know, my, my strengths and my weaknesses are. I, I think it was, uh, you know, of the latter of what you said, it was uh, something interesting that Marvel off that Marvel offered me, and you know, and, and the money was good. But hey, you know, you're working, you know, nine to five. You go home and you're working another five or six hours. You know, no one's handing you something for free. The the, the higher ups in the company at one point, they thought we were making too much money, forgetting that you know, really forgetting, and we were fairly well paid as editors. You know, our staff job was was fairly well paid, but to make extra money. You know, you give up your evenings, you give up your weekends, you give up holidays, you give up family time. You know, there's there are sacrifices. It's like I said, they're not handing you you know money for nothing. But they thought that we were overpaid. Some of them, some of the higher ups, thought we were overpaid, forgetting the fact that we had no life. You know, we were sacrificing an enormous amount of of our lives to make a decent, you know, a nice, you know, nice comfortable living. So yeah, the the writing I, I write now. So, you know, my mom, and I write a lot of graphic novels. It's all nonfiction, but it, they're graphic novels. So, you know, Marvel afforded me the opportunity to, you know, to, um, to find a voice and, and, and learn that skill. It's different, but, you know, it's different editing, obviously, being on the inside and being on the, on the outside. You know? uh, I do want to ask you about what you write now, but since we were, you were on your sort of editorial life at Marvel, do you feel like as an editor at Marvel, you had a particular strength or is there something in your time as editor that you can point to and say, I made that call. I found that person. I put that person on that book. I put this project together. What, what is, what are one or two sort of editorial peaks for you at Marvel? I did find some guys that then gave them their first jobs. <laughs> you know, the, the, the war machine armor, for example, right. It's become popular and, it's a cool thing, and when this when um, the plot was was given to me, Len, Len, Len Kaminsky, Len Kaminsky, excuse me, Len Kaminsky. I knew Len when he was he was an assistant editor when I first met him, and then he he left staff and went freelance, you know, to to write. Anyway, he's he's um, gonna kill Tony Stark. Oh, that don't. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, you no. tell you tell your story. I'll tell you that story. No, 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 no. War machine, war machine armor. All right. So, war, so 
I was enjoying what Len was doing. He he was a good guy to work with. He had good ideas. Um, he knew technology and, and stuff, nanotechnology and stuff. So you know, he 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 knew stuff. You know, he knew stuff. And um, Kev was was on the book. And again, you know, working with the you know these British guys, the books were on time. You know, you need changes. You want change. It was just so pleasant. And um, and Kev was a really good guy. And um, this is Kev Hopgood. But the script. Kev Hopgood, yeah. The script called for Len described the armor, you know, it's kind of whatever. But he said that the armor's coloring should be yellow and blue. And I and that was and it just I said I was really excited. He was talking about, you know, this heavily armored that, 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 colored yellow and blue. And I just said, man, no. It it can't it it can't be. It just it's too it's too primary. So I was thinking the old football, the old Oakland Raiders football team, football team, they were this black and silver. They had black and silver uniforms and they were regarded at least in the sixties or seventies when I was following football as the meanest SOBs on a football field. I mean, you know, rough, tough, bearded, monstrous. And I said, that's what it's gotta be. It's gotta be the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> So, so I changed that in the in the in the script, and I told I spoke to Kev. No, I didn't tell him. No, th oh, so this is good. So, so I I don't know if I told him. I don't know what what I did, but I said no. It's got to be this color. This is what happened. Kev was in New York at the time. He was already on the book. He was he started penciling this. This is what happened. He started penciling this issue. So I kept in mind when I saw that when I saw the the the, the plot yellow and blue. I guess I made a mental note. I said no, it can't be. It's got to be this other thing. So Kev happened to be in New York at the time. So I set him up at a drawing board right outside my office and he starts penciling the book, starts penciling the book. And I said, look, you know, uh, do some sketches about how you perceive, you know, this, the new armor, this new war machine armor. And, uh, you know, we'll take it from there. We'll run it past Len, we'll talk about it. He starts doing some sketches and he starts, because he's only working from the plot, he starts putting in yellow and blue on the on his pencil sketches. And I was I was walking out and I looked, I said, no, 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 no. It's it's black, kind of black and white, but it's black and silver. It's real gray, gray thing, gray, black. Thing. So that's so that's what he did, and that's what it. And then, and my notes to the colorist was, it's you know, it's it's this, as best as our shitty coloring, pardon the language, could approximate black and gray. Do it that way. So in the books, he was he was essentially black and white, you know, light blue highlighting. Um, because if I had made them all gray, it just, again, it just would have been murky. It would have been like the original, you know, Iron Man armor, nothing really distinctive. But that caught on, man, that was, that was, yeah, that, that really caught on quickly. And it had a lot to do with the coloring. It just, it just, it just did, I, I think. It just made it a very grim kind of, you know, we mean business. The yellow and blue was just, not for that, you know, I think he had a yellow and blue armor at some point, didn't he? A space armor or something—I don't remember. Before my time, I thought he did. But that—that—that was—that was my one major contribution to comic book, though. Um, and I did find some 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 artists, uh, who I th you know went on to you know do some you know nice things and stuff over the years. Uh, I met a lot of these guys, cons and yeah. But that editorially, that was that was that would I would say that's the feather, a big deal. I picked the. I picked the coloring on, but when he, you know, when he got in the movies and stuff, you know, my son would go hate that. 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, what what kind of your your final thoughts on on maybe your time at Marvel and if you're able to link that back to GI Joe, that would be perfect in a nutshell. <laughs> well, I was real fortunate. I I knew it was um, it was my time there was really like catching lightning in a bottle. It really was for the confluence of of people, the experience of the older people, the the um, the eagerness to 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 learn, to absorb the craft and the history of the younger people. It, it was a wonderful group of socially. We played baseball together, softball. We hung out. It was it was a really terrific experience, and having been given the opportunity to really maybe unlike anyone there you know before or since, I went through the whole company. I went from you know the grunts in the bullpen, you know to you know the executive floor, or whatever, you know suit and tie and doing some business traveling and you know and such. I was given those opportunities to do different things, and I'm very grateful uh, you know for those things. But Joe was particularly important because it it showed our ability, Marvel's ability, to be flexible in its business thinking. It's not just about us. It's about introducing properties and, and product to a, 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 an audience beyond the comic book audience. And that's, that's one of the things that Joe did. Larry's book, as Transformers did, it brought in non-superhero people and non-comic book people into the Marvel fold. Many people now, young kids tell me, oh, you know, Transformers was the first book I, I, I bought. And then I got into, you know, G.I. Joe was the first, you know, comic I, you know, I, I read. Yeah, it, it brought a lot of young people into the industry. And, um, and Joe, being a very, a very small part of just a massive success of what that was, uh, you know, what it became and how well it was managed by the guys at, um, at Hasbro, and to a lesser degree, us. But, I mean, it, it's 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 a historic time in 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 toy manufacturing. You know, in, in toy marketing was what was what those guys uh, did up at Hasbro, and and it was you know it was nice working with them. I have really fond memories of them. You know, going through the uh, you know the, the problems that we faced, the challenges that you know that we faced. You know, as I was you know mentioning before, and seeing the ultimate you know success that it had. It was, it was, you know, really gratifying. But I grew up at Marvel. I learned business at Marvel. I met my wife at Marvel. My best friends are still Jack Morelli, Mark Chiarella, Larry I played in a band with for 10, 12 years, Mark Wright, the same thing. They were just, you know, they were very, very lasting friendships and relationships that I would not have had. And had had Stan told me, no, there's no place for you to go, I would have been gone. I would have gone back to school. It was, it was you know, it was Stan and Stahl saying, yeah, we'll take a chance, you know, sure. And and these these days for our audience, if they wanted to find you or, or check out your latest endeavors, where should they go? What should they be looking for? They could go to Amazon and just uh, search my name and you'll see the, uh, the books that I've written. I've written you know, probably close to 300 books, all nonfiction, some uh, many, maybe half or a little bit more graphic novels. A lot of all pretty much all have to do with history because that's my passion. I've got a couple of very steady clients and have I haven't held a staff job in about twelve years. Uh, the last thing I did was I, I was the editorial director at Hammond Map, you know the book the Map publishes. And since then, I just I just decided you know stick with freelance and work out of the house. So that's what I've done. And you know 
yeah, and I, and I, I'm, I'm frequent. I'm again, I'm grateful for, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm busy pretty much all the time you know, writing, which is you know, and it started a model. I didn't write before then. I wrote you know, college stuff, but you know, nothing to you know to entertain or educate. And it's for a young audience, which I like. Do you still play harmonica? I I do. I fiddle around a little. I don't play with any bands. I, I do have a, a set of drums that I, I occasionally play, <laughs> but uh, I do. Yeah, I still play harmonica a little. That was, you know, was yeah, I, you know, that kind of self-taught thing. I, I, I mean, my my, I guess I picked that up from you know my father mostly. You know, as, as long as you're here, just learn. You know, learn stuff. You know, if you go into business, ask that guy what he's doing. How does he do it? You know, ask you know ask questions. You know, look to to. You make life more interesting for yourself, and and, and I, I think that was the bottom line of you know my experience at, at Marvel that spanned you know many years was that opportunities presented themselves, and I, I tried to make the best of them you know from you know for myself. And you know even now, like meeting guys like yourself, it, 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 twenty years ago, if you asked me, hey, you know you're going to be interviewed about something you did you know when you were thirty years old, is it what are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, so obviously. The, something that I did, I'm not, not, not impacted people, and that that's that's gratifying. Something that I did impacted in a positive way people, and that's you know, that's what more than more than I guess anyone can hope for, really. Yeah, it's like you guys. I mean, without realizing it, you, you know, you're reaching an audience, and, and people are gonna they're gonna remember this, and if you know, years from now, hey, I used to listen to those two guys. And, it was interesting stuff. And they fed my they fed my passion and, and things. We don't realize. That. I'm going to tell them right now to buy some Nell Yontov historical graphic novels Thank and you. and history books right now. Talking Joe listeners. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. That's good too. And uh, if uh, this is the ha- happens to be the first time that you've stumbled across Talking Joe as a listener, talkingjoe.co.uk is the uh, website where you can find out more about us and uh, you know delve on through our archives and uh, find us talking to uh, lots of interesting people all about gi joe and uh, more besides um tim where can people find you when you're not talking about things gi joe video essays on tv and film at our youtube channel atomic abe productions my brick and mortar comic book store in somerville massachusetts is Hub Comics, and I write about G.I. Joe at arealamericanbook.com. Very good. Nell, thank you so so much. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. I I, I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Thank you, Nell, for for, responding to to my initial request. Thank you for coming on with us, and thank you for uh, being so generous with your time and and sort of telling us all of this great, uh, this, this, this sort of illuminating stuff uh, from from someone who was there, um, and and particularly with with you, such a a, a broad and varied sort of uh, experience uh, across the, the you know, both comics industry and and beyond. But I think that is us done, which only leaves us to say that nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. <laughs> Later. Wonderful. Guys, thanks so much, man. You know, G.I. Joe ain't just toys, funny books, and tunes. Those guys are licensed anything. 
So funky, so nice, G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do, it's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. On the side. T-shirts, funkers, sticker shampoo, lunchbox soap, jackets, underoos. Yeah, that's right. I said underoos. Badges, brushes, combs and mugs, telephones, tissues, and probably hugs. Hot damn. G.I. Joe hugs? Radios, candy, tense tattoos, with a G.I. Joe logo they just can't lose. Door knocker, doorbell, even doormat. They're probably brand your dog and your cat. So funky, so nice, it's G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do. It's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. It's G.I. Joe merchandise.